Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to being a renewable energy partner for New England and working to fight climate change. Learn more at sunbugsolar.com. We start today's BPR with Chuck Todd of Meet the Press. His big house vote on tax cutting is just hours away. Should 50 million Americans get ready to wave goodbye to their 401ks? Then we'll ask if you're ready to wave goodbye to your dog. That is, if you say yes to Amazon Key, which will allow their delivery person to enter your house or apartment to leave off a package. Then at noon, it's Andrew Cabral. Cash bail keeps many poor people in jail for minor crimes. There's a campaign amongst religious people. To end it, we'll get Andrea's take. The Globe's Alex Beam on Donald Trump's fake Renoir that he insists is real. Facts be damned. And he's been insisting for 20 years. Plus, the war against sugar and naughty French dogs is spoiling the presidential palace off to the presidential doghouse. And from 1 to 2, a full hour, Attorney General Maura Healy takes our questions and yours on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. Hey, Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. How are you doing? Good. Good. So when Senator Jeff Flake announced he was not running for re-election, Meet the Press's Chuck Todd asked him what message this sends to his fellow Republicans who share his concerns about Donald Trump but have not been acting upon them. Well, at some point, this fever will break. Uh, at some point, this spell will be off. And, and people realize, where are we? What are we doing? Uh, we've got to accomplish something here. We have big problems that we need to fix. And, and we can't do that if we're exhibiting the kind of behavior that's exhibited and taking the positions that are being taken. And so I, I do think that it's going to uh, be people out there just saying, we've had enough. It's enough. But until Republicans reach that point, assuming they ever do, will voters continue to pick Trump over character and civility? Or does chatter that Joe Arpaio um, is mulling a Senate run in Arizona answer that question? Chuck Todd joins us on the line for his take on this and other headlines. Chuck, of course, is moderator Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 1030 on NBC Boston. That's Channel 10 on most providers. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC and the political director for NBC News. Hello there, Chuck Todd. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Good morning. So let's talk about doing things. Uh, the House needs to approve this budget uh, plan for us. Not I, us. I shouldn't say us. us. <laughs> for, the, <laughs> for the Republicans to get somewhere on their tax plan. So what, what's going to happen? Well, look, they, they're, they're just trying to come up with a framework to at least find a way to find 218 House votes. And, you know, they're... And they're trying to do this with Republican votes alone. And it's very difficult. And so, you know, already they're having to make these compromises. If to not blow a gigantic hole in the deficit, they were trying to find some tax uh, breaks to get rid of in order to pay for some parts of this. One of them was this idea that you can't write off your state and local taxes anymore. Well, that was just going to cost them a whole bunch of Republican votes in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, but not just there, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan. So that was it, it, it. So, you know, they're writing a tax plan that's more about how they get their 219 votes rather than whether it adds up. But by the way, if they <laughs> that's, don't. That's Ch- basically the, the, the bottom line. 
Chuck, if they don't get their 218 votes today in the House, this whole thing falls apart. Because my understanding is without that being approved by the House, then the Senate can no longer do their thing with 50 votes, which means they can't do anything, right? Well, which is why they had to cave in on this on this thing, because without it, they, they really were precarious. Look, they're going to go forward in the House. There's too much penalty to be paid. There's a price to be paid for any Republican. Look, there's a divide in the Republican Party. But the, the one issue that basically holds the coalition together is cutting taxes. You know, if, if you were if you were the Republican that prevented them even from even attempting to do a tax cut, that they were so heavy political price space. So they'll get the votes and they'll pass this framework. Yeah, my favorite thing was uh, the other day uh, Marjorie was frowning at me because I was praising President Trump for his unequivocal opposition to a change in the tax break, the tax deferral under 401ks. He tweets about that. Yesterday he's out on the White House lawn or wherever he is. He's asked the question. He says, no, 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 we're not going to change that. And literally a nanosecond later someone says, well, the House Ways Means Chair says it still is on the table, at which point he says, well, okay, maybe it is uh, is on the table. I mean, Talk about third rail. There are 50 million middle-class Americans whose retirement is dependent upon this thing. There's no chance that that, that tax break is reduced or eliminated, right? I, I, I would be shocked if it is. I think, look, 401Ks are, are, are not the best retirement tools you could have. But in a world no without kidding. Pension, they are the best retirement tool you can yeah. have, right? It's like yeah. it's like 401ks are not that great, except when you realize there's nothing else. Yeah. So if you take away this, you're like, really? You've already beaten up a generation on pensions, and now you're going to tell them you can't even you, you can't even defer your your taxes on your retirement for for, for Are you kidding me? You know, it's it's one of those that I think that it just has no. No political legs at all. It would be it's one of those that would be enough to cost somebody an election for voting for a provision like that. Well, well, Chuck Todd, talking about no legs, I mean, I am so excited when I read the polls yesterday about Americans aren't buying this baloney anymore. You know, we bought the trickle down thing back in the 80s with Reagan. It's like the health care plan. It's not true that this is a middle class tax middle class tax cut excuse me marjorie and once only one third of americans back it so uh, that's the other question do do republicans try to pass this even though the country knows the emperor has no clothes i think they try to pass a lot of it but i think that they're going to try to make two things the centerpiece that people see and they hope that that's going to be enough um, the earned, you know, the, the most tangible middle class tax uh, break that, that they're talking about is to expand the earned income tax credit for people without kids. Right now, you get basically an extra tax break with kids. This would, uh, you know, a certain income level without kids. That would be a tangible, that's tangible money in your pocket um, for, for certain folks at a certain income level. So I think they're going to try to lead with that. And I think they're going to try to lead with the with the idea that they've brought down that corporate tax rates are now more competitive and they're going to say, hey, now these guys are going to use this money to create jobs. And that's the biggest mythology of them all. And this is where the public doesn't believe them on this, which is this idea that somehow if big companies get their get a tax break here, that they're somehow going to spend that money to hire more people. No, they're not. They're going to they're if they're a publicly traded company, they have a fiduciary responsibility to reward their shareholders. And that's what they're going to do. And that's what happened the last time. 
Um, and so that's the part of this where I, I agree with you. I think over time, Marjorie, I don't think this tax cut is going to resonate as a big break. I don't think it's going to be a negative that it costs people in election, but I don't think it's going to be something, oh, what an accomplishment. Yeah. We're talking to Chuck Todd from Meet the Press. You know, Chuck, I, I don't know if I can even contain my excitement. You know, I, I was really excited we might have a Senator Roy Moore from Alabama, one of the most enlightened <laughs> guys. And if we could add Senator Joe Arpaio post-pardon to the Senate, you know, yeah. my thesis on this, which I know is not an original thesis, is while Donald Trump yeah. was claiming victory a couple of days ago by helping to force Corker and Flake out, the f- more extreme yeah. the replacements, I know in this case they're not replacements, you know what I mean, the more extreme the Republican mm-hmm. nominees end up being, the more likely is that Democrats are going to win a race or two that they never had a chance of winning. They're even within the margin of error or something in Alabama. Is that a thesis to which you subscribe or no? Well, look, I do think that we're all, and a lot of my friends in the in the press, you know, the political press corps is, is divided up between people that cover no campaigns and people that understand Washington. But sometimes they don't understand both. And I think a lot of people here are, are so focused on the president's um, ability to hold his base that we're sort of whistling past the independent voter graveyard here. <laughs> Okay, and and yes, his 37 percent is rock solid. And yes, if he shot somebody on Fifth Avenue, they would rationalize it and explain it away and say, oh, yeah, well, what about the you know, what about the gun? You know, you know, what about this? Whatever. (laughs) So uh, they blame everybody else for it, except for the except for the except for him. So but there is 63 percent of the country that doesn't like this. There is 20 percent of independents. And I'm I'm giving a very a very narrow number on the independent voter number. You could say there's up to 40 percent of voters think they're independent, but there's a true hardcore, I'd say, 20 that, that truly vacillates between the two parties. And these folks, numbers wise, look more like Democrats right now in their disapproval of Trump. So, look, Donald Trump today has more control over the Republican Party than he did yesterday. OK, that is true. Jeff Blake and Bob Corker have been cowed. Um, you know, they're 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 they are noisy in their surrender, but they've surrendered. Right. They're walking away. They're not going to fight this fight. And the rest of the Senate Republicans have decided to, you know, they're going to try to live with him. They're going to try to survive. But if Flake is replaced by a Democrat and Corker is replaced by a Democrat, we're going to look at this week and say Donald Trump's ruining the Republican Party. Now, if they're not and if they are, you know, if 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 these guys even even if their nominees that seem unelectable can get elected, and you know, uh, then you know we'll we'll look back at this week and say, wow, it was wasn't just a good week for Donald Trump. He's, you know, he's onto something that the rest of us don't understand. You know, Chuck, but one I last... think, I'm sorry, I think independent voters here. I think we're whistling past the independent voter graveyard when we talk about Trump. One last uh, one last related question here. Maybe you can play Nostradamus for a second. If you had to say who was the most likely. Republican who was not a heading for the exit door, who might echo the Corkers and the Flakes and to a degree the McCains, who who mm-hmm. who would be a likely suspect for that position? You know, I have another theory on who the next person's going to be. That it isn't, you know, look, I think I could go and I'd sit here and say, well, sure, you know, maybe it's a, a John Cornyn. You know, he is he's never been comfortable with the president's words and somehow he's done some things. And, there's little things that I've noticed in how John Cornyn tweets. 
that he, he, he has a lot more to say and he won't say it. Right? It's so clear to me. But I don't think at the end of the day he wants to be majority leader, right? He wants to replace McConnell, so I don't think he's going to. But here's what I think is going to happen. I think the next Flake or Corker, okay, the next one of these big breaks won't be from someone who was always sort of never a fan. I think the next big break is somebody that was all in, that it turns on him. You know, that's where I think is the next, where, where we have one of these moments where we go, oh, boy. This one, this one could leave a mark. You know, you know, maybe it's a chief of staff, right? Either a current or a former. Maybe it's a, a Gary Cohn. You know, we don't know. What I'm saying is, the person today doesn't know they're going to be that person. But this president so alienates mo- people at certain moments, no matter how close they are to him, that I think it's inevitable that there will be someone very close to him that snaps and just says, "I've had it." And breaks. And that will be an interesting moment to see, okay, what do the rest of the never Trumpers do when that happens? Vice President Pence is on the phone. He wants to talk yeah. to you. We're talking to Chuck <laughs> Dodd. So, so um, should we not make too much then of the standing ovation the president's talking about that he got when he uh, uh, was, was greeted by senators the other day? You know what's interesting here? You know what's interesting here, Marjorie, uh, is that Trump knows he's lying. Trump knows those guys don't like him. Yeah. Trump knows they're, that they're faking it with him, and he doesn't care. He would prefer that those guys fake adulation for him um, in front of him and, and for the public do that, even if they don't like him behind the scenes. And I've never seen a president that way. It's just – or any politician. Like, it, it, frankly, any human being usually – like, I don't think he cares what people really think of him as long as they fake say nice things. And, he, and he's okay if he knows it's phony. It's the damnedest thing. Hey, Chuck, my whole career has been built on fake adulation, (laughs) so I have no problem with that. So does does he want people to fear him then? Is that what it is? Yes. It's all about fear. That's exactly right. And he has conducted – look, his business career, his successes are his ability to basically grind people down during negotiations. Yeah. Right? There's never a win-win when you're dealing with Trump. It's – he wins, you lose, or you're in court for, for 15 years. Hey, and I, and every story sort of ends the same way, where oh, that's the last time I'm ever going to do a deal with him, but fine, here you go. And Trump's like, great, I won. Hey, we're talking to Chuck Todd. Quick thing from me. It, we started talking yesterday, like everybody is, about the Republicans celebrating because they think they have something on the Democrats in this this uh, discovery that uh, the Clinton campaign and the DNC was paying for this uh, Christopher Steele seamy Russian dossier thing. I thought a lot about it, and we were talking about in the area. So I said, ultimately, as someone who's been involved in campaigns, it may be sleazy, but it's essentially opposition research, which is what everybody does. Am I being too kind to the Clintons and the DNC? Look, the Clinton – I'll say this. The Clinton campaign – and, and, and those around that, that vehemently denied any connection to this, there's, it's, they have to answer for that. And, and mm-hmm. it's sort of – they were such in denial because I – look, it, ultimately it doesn't matter. If it's true, it doesn't matter who paid for it, right? Mm-hmm. And ultimately Bob Mueller isn't trusting the dossier to make an allegation. Right. He's reinvestigating it. Mm-hmm. He is trying – by the way, let's not forget what Richard Burr – a Republican senator from North Carolina who's helping to co-run the investigation in the Senate, what he said about the dossier, which is they've been able to 
piece it together up to a certain point, mm-hmm. and then they hit a wall. Well, guess what that means? It means they're reinvested. The point is this. This is a political problem for Democrats if the dossier is fake, if the dossier is made up, if Mueller ends up finding out it wasn't true and it was mis- whatever. But if Mueller – ultimately, Mueller's going to decide whether the dossier, you know, there's anything to the dossier, and if there is, well, then it's about Mueller. Right? It has nothing. To, then it doesn't matter who paid for it. Then it's about, well, geez, it's true. Or well, what's true in here, you know? And that's ultimately how uh, the future of where this where this is going. It, it, it's all about what Mueller finds, figures out. You know, Chuck Todd. Before we go, uh, I mentioned um, uh, watch. I'm a big fan of MTB Daily. It's on five o'clock here in mm-hmm. Boston. Yesterday, I watched it, and you ended with uh, uh, Senator Bill Bradley, who uh, ran for president, great basketball player and stuff, and. Most of us think that this that, that aren't Trump fans think that it's never we've never seen anything like this. But you had a great segment where he talked about his disgust. So was it yeah. mini disgust compared to now, or was it just as much disgust? And we're just not aware of our history. It was in Bradley was it was Bradley believed this was very in in his gut that it was this and there were plenty of people hand-wringing then but it wasn't the majority there were a lot of people that were just like oh you know bill bradley grow up politics ain't being bad and you know what compared to today yeah it's you know the the, the, the partisan warfare of the early 90s um that the gingrich revolution brought in um you know seems quaint today but it was um you know we don't have the environment we have today without the environment that was created mm-hmm. Um, in, with the Gingrich Revolution, we okay. we have to remember that, okay. and the old idea that it politics was a, a, a nonstop warfare, and a famous line: "The politics of personal destruction." Well, that became basically a standard practice. I mean, if you think about it, we started tearing down speakers, Jim Wright, you know, then we tore down Newt Gingrich, and you know, but it, whatever. It just the entire political structure was, you know, both political parties decided to go down that road, right, where it became a so. I think that we ought to look back on Bradley's warnings in 95 and say he was an you know he was sounding the alarm at a time when we weren't listening we we should have been listening better. You know before you go I know you're a big sports fan. I saw a lot of Bill Bradley in college. You're a little, little bit younger than I am and I, I would like you yeah. to know maybe one of the two or three best college players I've ever seen at Princeton. And if you had a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper, you could not slip it between the bottom of his sneakers and how far he got yeah. off the floor. I mean, it was un—amazing. It was really a different, he was unbelievable. So Chuck, I, I, I yeah. know, but Bill Bradley, I, I always say this, he had the charisma of a 19th century president, <laughs> meaning that's true. in the 19th century, he would have been president. He had the yeah. pedigree, the smart, everything. But, man, I think that he just wasn't made for the modern era. God bless him. Yeah, Chuck, great to talk point. to you. Thanks. Thank you very much, Chuck Todd. All right, guys. See you Good later. Talking. Chuck Todd joins us every week. He's the moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 1030 on NBC Boston, Channel 10 on most providers. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC. That's on at 5 o'clock in Boston on MSNBC. He's political director as well for NBC News. We want to point out that we taped our interview with Chuck Todd earlier this morning before news broke that NBC had fired their news analyst, Mark Halperin, for multiple sex sex harassment charges. Coming up, 
Amazon takes delivery service to an extreme, dropping packages off inside your home when you're not inside your home. We're taking your calls, asking if this is taking convenience too far. That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And Marjorie's dancing for reasons that are unclear to everybody. So while mayors... Can't help acro- myself. Thank you. While mayors across the nation have been desperately trying to give Amazon a key to their city, Amazon is ready, as Marjorie has said, to have a key to your home. They're upping the customer convenience factor by delivering your packages, get this, not just to your home, but inside your home. It's called Amazon Key. And according to Hiawatha Brand, the Globe today... It's going to launch in 37 United States cities, including Boston, in November, which means as soon as a week. Here's the deal. To enlist, you need to pay $99 annual fee. And for another 250 bucks, you get a kit that includes an Amazon security camera. It's called the Cloud Cam, I think, and a compatible smart lock. Well, once you install the lock, I think they install it for nothing, actually. Once the lock is installed and the camera inside your house within 25 feet of a door, you'll be able to access an in-home shipping option for your Amazon purchases. When a delivery guy or woman shows up, Amazon will verify the address and time and let them in. You can watch the entire transaction from your home or your computer. Are you kidding me? We're opening up the lines asking you if this is taking convenience to an extreme. Is this big brother acting, big business, excuse me, acting as big brother? The number's 877 877- Three zero one eighty nine seven. Do you really want to watch from some remote location? An Amazon driver deliver, enter your home, drop off your copy of nineteen eighty four that you just ordered. Do you worry that hackers could break? There are a million things. You worry hackers could break into your house. Do you think your privacy is already up for grabs though? So what's the big deal? When your dog runs away, which is going to happen, <laughs> what do you – I mean, there is not one – I am a huge convenience person. There's yep. nobody who's more into convenience than am I. But the notion that you're going to let somebody you don't know into your home, number mm-hmm. one. And number two, most people have pets. What's going to happen to the pet? I mean, the pet's going to run down the street. Was the Amazon driver going to run chase after the pet and put it back in your house? Well, maybe if you have if pets, you, you can't do this. But, but Who doesn't have a pet? Well, I have a pet, but he's not going to run down the stairs in time. I think it depends on how the configuration of your house. I, I'm kind of into this. I could see what this What is happening. the part you're into? Well, because, first of all, I have nothing in my house that anybody would want to steal except for my laptop computer. I guess that's about it. Okay, could, so they'll take your laptop I computer. Bring, I could bring that to work. And you can me, watch them take your laptop computer on the camera. But the other thing is, think about the stress at Christmas time. You know, when you, if now that everybody's ordering stuff in Christmas, I mean, what are the odds? Are the odds with the Amazon guy stealing from your home yes. or the odds with the slippery people in your neighborhood stealing stuff from you your You ever had a package hall? stolen from your front hall? Uh, no. Okay, well, that takes care but of that I, question. But my son has, and I worry all about He lives about in New York? It. He lives in New York City. Which okay. I suppose that's a little bit rougher territory or something. Okay, beyond, you know, Marjorie, you're taking this to an extent. I'm not. No, no, no. I'm, let me get my thing out here. By the way, the okay. number is 877 You're going to sign up for this thing. It's called an Amazon Key. It's I'm coming next up. month, November, to Boston as well as 36 other American cities. Beyond, let's assume they're not going to steal you blind. Does it not creep you out that somebody you don't know is going to open your door. Well, it's going to be remotely open. Is going to open the door right. to your house yeah. 
walk in your house. Theoretically, he or she, let's give them the benefit of that. Is only going to you know walk in far enough to put the package inside the door. That doesn't creep you out that somebody you don't know well, is going to enter your abode, again, as they say. It's, it's, it's the way my house is figured. You walk into my front door and you're facing stairs. Ridiculous. So you're just going to drop the thing at the bottom oh, of the oh, stairs. Oh, do that. And I don't think they're going to be going upstairs. And that makes I, it, what makes oh, me a little oh, bit nervous. Oh, I have to use the bathroom. They, I don't think there's no harm do. to do it. What? I don't, I don't think they're going to be using. The so bathroom. you're fine with that. Well, it's a little unnerving, but you think about how nervous you get, even though no one has stolen packages from my house. I do get nervous, especially around Christmas when you're ordering so much stuff online. It's mm. being delivered to your house, and, and, and it's sitting on your porch kind of like a sitting duck there. And I, I'm worried about people driving by in, like, vans with the curtains on them, God, you know, was... and stealing stuff off my okay, porch. Okay, can I say one, one more observation before we get to the calls? I know when that... you have things monogrammed, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, okay, fine. What have you had monogrammed lately? Well, I've had... Can name one thing. thing. You've one thing. I bought a book from my sister. It was monogrammed. It was no. It was a New York Times thing where you get the date of their uh, birth Uh and you get the front pages for the last fifty years or sixty years, however long they're alive from the from the day of their birthday, which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. And they put the name of the person on the cover. Fine. And when it's stolen, you know what you do? You get another one. Uh, So rather than somebody entering your, then you have to presume that you can convince the people that it is stolen. You know, I know everybody's in Amazon. Well, most people are in Amazon these days. Tito Jackson, not quite as much as we learned the other night as uh, Marty Walsh. But do you worry that there's going to come a time, maybe five years from now, when there's one business in the United States of America? That's another issue. I do feel bad about that. You know, until I read the story that Hiawatha wrote today, which is a great story, really covers every base. They're trying to put UPS out of business, trying to put FedEx out of they business. Are, which is bad. They put bookstores out. Of, and by the way, how great is it? After they put independent bookstores, well, not all of them. There's some great ones here. A lot of bookstores out of business. What do they do? They open brick and mortar bookstores. They want to put. They want to put grocery stores out of business with Whole Foods. Listen to this, though. On the other hand. The company also offers these Amazon home services. I did, did not you know, know about, about this? that till this morning. Which nope. provide customers with personal services like dog walkers, computer repair technicians, that. electricians, handyman. The Amazon handyman can come over and assemble the flat pack furniture the Amazon delivery person left inside your door. Okay, so last thing for me. You mm-hmm. have a smart lock on like your... Like if you have Ikea furniture, oh, you know, if you get a... Yeah, they put it together. No, the Ikea... Oh, they don't, don't put, put it, it together, together. Right. No, they don't. You have to put it together yourself. Okay, so you have fine. to hire someone to put it together. You could just have the Amazon person move in, basically. Okay, so you trust the Amazon person. They're not going to do anything bad, well, as you said a minute like ago. Said, Wait a second. So you have a smart are... lock on your on your door, right. and the 13-year-old kid who lives in the basement across the street from your house uh-huh. decides to hack into your house. He or she, by the way, is not going to stop at the front door. You're fine with that, too? Well, again, I have you know I don't have many electronics. I figure, what do people steal these days? Do people steal books? Mostly, I have books. People don't steal books; they oh, steal I electronics. Have don't books, they? okay. Well, I, no, I just have a lot of a lot of old books mm. that I rather like. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm well, a lot of people don't want anybody collector. stealing their pornography, Marjorie. That's. <laughs> Let's state the raw and ugly truth here, and okay. especially well, an Amazon to, driver. I don't have to worry about yeah, that, that's Jim. That's what she says. I on didn't the air. realize that you had to worry about that. So I didn't. Much. Say, I'm not talking about me. I meant <laughs> okay. the generic. Let's go to Don in Arlington. You ready How to do sign they steal up? Your pornography. I thought the pornography was on the computer. Whatever. I Is it know. elsewhere as well? I wouldn't know. Don from Arlington. We're talking about Amazon Key coming to. Well, I assume Arlington counts as part of Boston. What do you think? You signing up? Well, you know, all my all my porn is in the cloud, so it's not really a problem. <laughs> oh, so you're safe. That's good. That's good. Uh, not really a big issue. Every, you know, I'm a I'm a man of the 2100s. It's all it's all in the cloud. But uh, 
But in all seriousness, you know, the, the thing, I think the discussion of Big Brother and privacy and all that, it, it, this is not mandatory. So this is all, all what you're talking about is, I think, sensationalism and ridiculousness. Because I, I would certainly never do it. But, but so then I'll have Amazon leave the stuff outside my door, and, and that makes me happy. And, and some other person wants to do it, and that'll make them happy. Yeah, and but it, you know, I know it's voluntary, but it's creeping. Is it not creeping and creepy, but, Don? I mean, Don makes a great point. Oh, you don't have to do it. If you, don't, if you find it creepy, don't do it. Okay, Don, here's my projection, because Jeff Bezos is a pretty good business guy. You don't sign up for the $90, $99 fee and the $250 kit. That's perfectly fine. As you say, it's voluntary. And in a year, because you haven't signed up, there's a $7 premium on every purchase because they have to worry about security for your packages left out in the street. And then a $14. I mean, he obviously wants people to do this. He's skillful enough. He'll figure out how to make voluntary less than voluntary. No or no? I mean, you don't, no? No. Okay. No, because this is, you know, this is where I'm a little different than some of your listeners. I, I believe in free market. And yeah. if, uh, if, if that happens, then it creates a market opportunity for somebody. And there's a vacuum, and, and eventually it will get filled. You know, markets aren't perfect. It may take time. But, you know, there's, if, if they start doing stuff like that, uh, the need will be filled. And well, you know, but Don, but, like, you know, for a moment, uh, he has essentially put out the retail book business. He's put them out of business with the exception of some wonderful independent stores here and around the country. He could do what – oh, your contention is if he did whatever he wanted, then all of a sudden the business would spring back up again? Well, yeah. I mean, okay. and, and let's not okay. forget, you know, we've got, we've got Walmart and Jet out there, and they're not doing much right now. But, it, it's a, you know, Walmart is still the biggest retailer on the planet, and they've purchased a very savvy, you know, web delivery company. and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, by the way, this they, story Walmart says put the, put they do the put your groceries in the refrigerator. Here is a quote. Thank you, Don, for a great call. By the way, uh, uh, according to Hiawatha Bray, but Amazon Key is far more ambitious than Walmart's play. For one thing, it's about so much more than groceries. Walmart is just doing groceries. In addition, it fits nicely. This is reading from Hiawatha's piece with Amazon's ongoing effort to weaken the grip of its package delivery partners, the U.S. Postal Service, UPS. And FedEx. I mean, the guy, again, the guy is basically ruling the world. What's the statistic? To, is it something like 50% of all uh, online purchasing in the country? 50%, I think, is the number, yeah. is Amazon. I mean, is that stunning? The market share for Amazon well, because is they make half... It, they make it so easy. It arrives really fast. I mean, you order from elsewhere, and you know you could be waiting quite a long time. Do you know the new pro after Amazon Key? Did you read the story about the new programming? Amazon Bedroom, by the way, <laughs> because <laughs> Jeff Bezos <laughs> wants to satisfy your every need. Well, if things aren't working out that well in your marriage. You could have the Amazon boy come exactly. over. Exactly. <laughs> just do Amazon. He'll just come into the bedroom. He'll be there five minutes, and he'll leave just like the guy delivering the packages. And he's really buff. Eight he seven looks seven, great. and they're women too. They'll women do that too. next. We don't want to leave the men out. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seven. We're talking about Amazon Key, and again, the thing that was shocking to me, and I'm in the great piece in the Globe, is how soon this is coming. I knew nothing about November. this. November. I know. In Boston Before in Christmas. 36. Uh, and you, you have know, to make the decision. You know, do you want to stress out about your Christmas packages or do you want to stress out about them robbing your house? Exactly. Amazon boy. You know, we should ask whether at the, by the way, one by o'clock the way. hour, wait a second, one o'clock, the attorney general is going to be yep. here for her hour a month more, Healy. 
We should ask if she has concerns. And by the way, if you're Amazon, I know Jeff Bezos is a million times smarter than I will ever be. Mm-hmm. Don't you think there are liability issues that are attendant to having an employee of yours enter the home of a customer? Well, yeah. And I'm also wondering, suppose you're home when they enter the home. Well, I assume they knock that or could something be, first. That could give you a nervous breakdown. Well, a lot of people don't have doorbells at work and that sort of well, stuff. Well, I actually do, and I don't answer it, so that that's another thing. I remember as a kid, we, the house was getting robbed, and I was growing up, and the robbers were in the house. That was very disconcerting. They came Is that right really true? Me. Yes, it was very disconcerting. And then they panicked, and they tried to run out, and they... Uh, but that was kind of scary to have the robbers come in the house. Mm. Let's go to Frank and Ashland. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Thanks so much for the call, Frank. Hi. Hi. How are you guys doing? I haven't talked to you since you were elsewhere a few years ago. Wow, that was oh, five years goodness. ago. That was a while ago. That was always a, always a pleasure. Good. Well, you know, glad to have you back. I have two phrases for you. I have two phrases for you. What? Locks are there to keep honest people honest. And good fences make good neighbors. Mm-hmm. The problem with the with the new locks, as quickly as we do, as, as they come out with something, someone comes out with a, a device to override it. I couldn't You're agree more. You're going to have people follow following these trucks around. They're going to walk up to the house, open the door, put the package in, potentially let the poor poor guy's dog out at the same time, mm-hmm. and they're going to drive off. And then this guy with the electronic device is going to go up hit the do a search, hit the code, go in and grab the package, and hopefully let the dog back in. Well, Frank, you know, I'm where you are, but then I'll respond to you and me both by saying, why isn't that same uh, uh, lawbreaker just following the Amazon delivery truck right now, and when the package is left outside your door, steal it from outside your door? It's even easier. Yeah. But this also gives them the opportunity to to go into your house and get more than just the package that was just dropped off. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. But you that's know a good what? point. Now, I, I would, I would have a great idea for Amazon. What's that? For all the money they're going to, for all the money they're going to spend for these locks mm-hmm. in the center of each town, hire hire someone, a home, a guy, anyone with a garage, and and have a drop off. Well, by the way, it's not convenient enough for people. Do you know what they're doing in some apartment buildings? They and, and by the way, in Whole Foods, they have these little lockers now. Uh, they have a little uh, lock containers in the lobby of many apartment buildings, but not in all of them, which is a variation on your theme. And by the way, Frank, the other good news we just turned out about, they have Amazon replacement dog, too. So they, you may not get one as loving as the one you currently have. Frank, thanks for the uh, call. Uh, thank you very much. By the way, Callie just called the control room, our uh-huh. colleague Callie. Ikea, do you know, purchased TaskRabbit. Yeah, TaskRabbit. TaskRabbit's that service that basically will do anything for you. Wait mm-hmm. in line to get a new iPhone, That's uh, because fix Ikea had problems with people putting together the furniture, so they got the TaskRabbit yeah. people to come down and put together the furniture after they deliver the furniture. You know why I found that uh, putting the furniture together from Ikea is not a problem? It's because it generally lasts at least till the weekend. <laughs> And so maybe you should just save the time in terms yeah. of the construction and yeah. just move on. Well, Thank I've you had for the better call. Better luck with friend. like the chairs. Yeah. The, the bureaus, I wouldn't go. Bureaus with get a little shaky after the, the time. bureaus are the drawers. You know, you open the drawers and the drawers I think fall that's out. Part, yeah. yeah. Well, a solution is just not to use them. Just construct <laughs> them, and just right. not to use them. But the chairs, I'm okay with the chairs. That's good. Now we're talking about Amazon Key, which neither Marjorie nor I had ever heard of until this morning. Which is this new service you pay a $99 annual fee. It's coming to Boston in mm-hmm. November, according to Globe. And for another 250 bucks, you get a kit that includes this Amazon security camera. It's called the Cloud Cam. 
and a smart lock that goes with it so that once you install or they install or they pay for the installation of all this stuff, you're able to access an in-home shipping option when you purchase something from Amazon. And when the delivery man or woman shows up, Amazon verifies the address and lets them in. And if you choose to watch the transaction, you can watch it. If not, you can watch it later because it'll be recorded. So theoretically, they've covered all these bases. They've not covered enough bases for me. 877-301-8970. Tim in Worcester. Hi, Tim. Hey, Tim. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's kind of a funny subject, uh, but what if a, what if a guy or a gal uh, who's delivering these packages gets locked in inadvertently? And there's a vicious dog on the other side. Excellent point. Yeah, well, I mean, you know. By the way, that is a good right. point. That is a good well, point. Well, you know, you're all, if you're going to do this and mm. you've got a dog, you're going to have to confine the dog either in the you crate are. or behind a fence or, or something like that, Or how about a pack right? of cats? Yeah. How about a pack Feral of cats? Feral cats, exactly. Yeah. No, those are all good <laughs> points there, Tim. Thank you very much for the uh, call. By the way, how many times have you left, uh, but virtually every time I ask you to bring something to work, what do you do? Forget it. Forget it. So you know the Amazon key delivery person is coming mm-hmm. today. You know you have to lock up your vicious little nine-pound dog. <laughs> and let's – you forget it like you forget – I'm serious. You forget everything else. And just like this caller just said, but you wouldn't your dog that. is let you know loose. Why? why? Because the anticipation of getting a package. I mean how excited are you when you think a package is going to be arriving when you get home? Even if it's just a book. Marjorie, most of us actually read our email to find out that the Amazon delivery – like right. I have one today between 1 and 4 o'clock. Do you ever have any idea what time your delivery is? No. No, no but I know – that the package is coming today or tomorrow, and I know I have a certain lilt in my step in anticipation of the package coming. I mean, let's face it. Are there many more fun things than coming home and seeing a little package okay, on before the Before we take a break. Now, fine, Marjorie. We had to de... What do we have to de-whatever to our Keurig thing in the studio? What do we have to do? What's a de-scale de- it. We had to de-scale it. That's How right. many days in a row did you forget to bring the white vinegar? How many days in a row? <laughs> Five? I've, 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 Five? I finally showed up with it. How many days in a row did you forget to bring it? Well, you know, there's a solution to that, Jim. What is it? You bring could have walked across the street and gotten some vinegar, but you didn't want point. to do that, so you kept haranguing me for forgetting the vinegar. But and I by the way, we succeeded. Up. Do you believe and it no, worked? No, Jim did an awesome descaling job. It was Thank very you. impressive Thank to you. all who observed it. Many. We're talking about Amazon Key, the new service that lets the delivery person inside your home. Jim doesn't like it. He's worried about they're going to steal his porn. <laughs> Asking you if this is taking convenience too far. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Bradley and Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about Amazon Key. It's this new service that lets delivery people for Amazon drop packages off inside your home when you're not, meaning not at home. According to uh, Hiawatha Bray in the Globe, it is going to be implemented in 37 United States cities in November, meaning next month. And, you know, there's an interesting point in this uh, story. Natalie Berg, who is, I don't know, some retail commentator, says consumers are increasingly willing to sacrifice privacy for convenience. But I think this, oh, she goes on to say, I think it takes things too far. But then in the prior paragraph, a a wonderful point is made. You know, for people like me, I don't like sacrificing my privacy, even though I love convenience. I try to strike a balance. Amazon Echo, which is as invasive as anything possibly could be, it's already 
more right. than 10% of American homes. So, and the only reason I haven't gotten one is because I haven't had enough time to deal with it, but I intend to get one too. So despite all the rhetoric, most of us do put convenience ahead of uh, uh, security. You know, we have two really good emails. Uh, Same one. One is from Steve pointing out that uh, they have a camera so the, that's yeah. going to record the delivery person and presumably record anybody else who comes in afterwards to try to uh, steal stuff. That's not true. It's not true? The camera, according to the story, is activated just for the delivery when person. the guy or woman is going in. Yeah, so right. maybe they have that they have the ability, but to to extend that. But no, it's only limited to the trans- transaction. And Steve emails and said, "We're all forgetting that this has been done before by the when? milkman." He said he used to be a hood milkman. He had permission to enter people's That's homes, true. check the refrigerator, and deliver what was needed. But he that was a different time. Keys to certain houses. Ask him, hey, could you email us back? When did you do that? I well, mean, that was a long time exactly. ago. But, you know, Walmart, uh, uh, the caller who said before, the first caller, I think it was the first caller, said Walmart's already doing this. They are doing it on the grocery front. And uh, Bezos, Amazon plans to do it on the grocery front, too. Actually put stuff in your refrigerator, which I find doubly creepy, even though wonderful at the same time. So, I, I mean, it is, it's, you know, it's, it's happening. James says this reminds him of a George Carlin routine where his insight was in the future there will be one of everything, one bank, one clothing store, one food market, but there will be 2,500 brands of mustard. Do you remember that <laughs> no, one? I don't. Do but there's I. not going to be one bank, one grocery, there's going to be one everything. Amazon is going to be absolutely everything. It's, it has the capacity to put every, it's going to be one newspaper in America. I hope that's not true, but can't you see you know, there was a, a, a there was a thing, I think it was on Drudge or something, whenever it was, about a year or two ago, that the amount, I can't remember what the purchase price of the Washington Post was, one of the two or three best newspapers in America, without a shadow of a doubt, the amount that he paid to buy this prestigious newspaper was something like his average earnings for a day or yeah. an hour or four hours or some and you such know, thing. it has enabled the Washington Post to, I agree. to do fantastic work. And see, you see the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal without Amazon money and Bezos money trying to keep up, they're doing a pretty good job, but it's really improved the Washington Post, hasn't it? They're also stealing great reporters. I mean, look, they're stealing I mean, great as well as great as John Globe. Henry, I think, has done at the Globe. Yeah. There's a limit to his resources, as wealthy as he is. He's not Jeff Bezos, and Bezos is able to buy the best in the country. I mean, it's just, you know, it's whatever. And any, but the, the Washington Post is a phenomenally fabulous newspaper, particularly in these times. It is, although I still think the New York Times is better. Let's go to Bob in Rhode Island. You are next, and thanks so much for your call. Hi. Hi, Jim. Whoops. Say it again. Oh, we lost you, Bob. Oh, I said said, hi, Jim. Oh, hi. Hi, Bob. Shoot. You know, Jim, I I think we're just getting lazy. I I think it's something that I wouldn't do because, you know, just say you're on vacation and – you know, someone's controlling that and then open your door. Or, the, or, or let's say that you're home sleeping and someone gets an idea to open your door and maybe have someone to go in there. I don't know. I just think that we're getting too um, lazy to let these companies control our lives. And, you know, what's going to be next? They're going to drive our cars next, you know? Yep. So I just think it's a bad you know what you described at the beginning of that call? You described a B&E was what you described. But, you know, that's you raised a, a corollary to the point. We have a bad connection, Bob, so we got to let you go. But thank you for calling. An interesting question is, let's assume I buy you a gift. Mm-hmm. And I sh- you didn't order it. And I ship it to your house. Does the delivery person, I, maybe you have to check off that you give it permission. I guess they send you an email because I was going to say, does the delivery person have blanket permission by you when you sign up for Amazon Key? 
that uh, he or she can enter your house, meaning I, deli- I order a package so that I know that there's a guy who's going to go in your house to do so-and-so. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. And so, you know what I mean? I do not have the answer to that, Jim. Can you, can you research it during I the will, break? I will look into it. Thank you. But I do think there's the other parts of this that are kind of attractive. You like know? what, for example? Well, that you could get in an emergency situation, you could get an Amazon computer repair person to come to your house, like right away. Well, that's not Amazon Key. That's the Amazon... That's the Amazon well, by the Home way, Services. You don't have to use Amazon. You could have somebody come to your house to fix whatever you want right now. It doesn't yeah, have to be but Amazon. It's, but it's harder to find them, and it's harder to get them fast. You mean because it's centralized? You mean yes. Amazon? Yes. And yeah. the same thing with the, with the dog walker. Suppose your dog... Mr. Dog. Suppose your dog walker suddenly can't come, and you're yeah, stuck. But, you know, but you... And I'm close to you on this. You are a hypocrite, and I'm being a hypocrite. I'm close to you on this. Mm-hmm. We always talk about patronizing local businesses. We do. And every time you go on Amazon, which I probably do several times a week, we're doing exactly the opposite. We're more than likely driving that local business person out of business or on the way to being out of business, you know? Well, that's true. That's why we're all supposed to be going to bookstores. And, and actually, a lot of people still do go to the Brookline Booksmith, which is one of the great uh, bookstores ever, right on Beacon Street, well, right off of Beacon Street, actually, because it's got a lot of stuff going uh-huh. on there, and it's got a lot of authors coming to, to coming to read there. But you know what you've noticed? That since things, even big department stores, since you can buy from big department stores now online, when you go to the actual physical department store, it kind of yeah. looks like a third world country because they can't afford What's the term for that? Show? What's the name of the word when you go and you price something and then you buy it online? Show something? I know what you're talking about. You go into the store. Showrooming. Yeah. Thank you, Amanda. But, Appreciate but, it. But online, I mean, what I... Thank what you, I Molly. Do is, and and Wrong buy stuff online, and then go end up returning it if it doesn't work out. If I buy a dress or a pair of pants, whatever that doesn't. You mean work after out. you wear it, you mean? No, not after you I don't wear do it, that, Jim. Do... I don't do that. No, but you go back to the store Love and you think, that. "Oh my God, you can't find a salesperson. The place doesn't look as clean as it does." Because I think so many department stores are selling. Yeah, you know should do. Too. Just leave your front door open. I mean, this. <laughs> why? Why? Why discriminate against small businesses that don't have an Amazon key? Just leave it open and let them take what they want. Be nice for the neighbors. Want to come in and check out your house? Let's uh, go to Ryan and Hull. You're on Boston Public Radio. Welcome, Ryan. Hi. Hey guys, uh, long time listener, first time caller here. Ooh, thank you um, for both. You guys were talking about um, uh, what was it, milkman way milkman. back when? So I yes. grew up in Weymouth. Yeah, I grew up in Weymouth actually, and we had a milkman who. We gave the code to our garage. We would let him, we would, you know, he would come in every Friday. Really? And he would just drop everything off in the fridge and freezer, no big deal. Um, and, you know, I guess it was a little different than a delivery driver because it was the same guy who would come every I was just going to say, you knew him, right? I mean, you got to know him, right? Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, in the suburbs, I just don't feel like this is going to be as big of a thing. When I was in the city, when I was living in the city, I mean, if, you know, Delivery men would have to try to hide your package, or else it was just going to be stolen. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was guaranteed that someone was going to take it off the porch, or they would have to leave a slip, and then you'd have to go to the post office. The you know, during the worst. business hours, which you could never make. And so, I mean, this would be awesome, I think, for people, especially in the cities, um, but even in the suburbs. I mean, don't give them the key to your house; just give them the garage door code. You know, that's a good idea. In there. Garage door code. What what what's the code to your garage? I do not have a garage. Exactly, Ryan. How many years ago was the uh, milk guy delivering milk uh, into your refrigerator? Uh, we probably stopped it in like 2009. Oh, maybe oh, I didn't yeah, know some that. places nice. some wow. places lasted a long time, and I remember when I Thanks was growing for your first up call, Ryan. having the milkman. It was great. They they take the used milk bottles, the glass bottles. Remember those out of your refrigerator? They take, no, they take them off the back porch. Well, exactly. I back. I, you know, what I used to have delivered in New York City, which is one of the best things ever. I what? used to have a case of twelve 
uh, seltz, you know, the old seltzer bottles, like from the old, like oh, Marx Brothers things, the, the thick glass yeah. and uh, that stopped ultimately because they ran out of bottles and they didn't make new ones. They didn't come in your house, though. They left them outside your door. The problem is that the difference is seltzer doesn't go bad if it isn't refrigerated for hours. Milk does go bad if it's summer, right? And it isn't, obviously, and yeah, it that's isn't a refrigerated. Good point. How did the milk survive if it was out there? I think they both often just broke in the window and just, <laughs> but you trusted them. You knew there was somebody you could trust. So, okay. I mean, I'll tell you, you know, the prior quote was Ryan who said, in theory, this is really appealing, but I get back to where I was 30 minutes ago when we started this. It creeps me out that somebody I don't know, if I had the exact same, for example, the male people, the mailman, I've had the same male guy who is, they're fabulous. So lie, didn't turn out so well. I know, well, he stole all your stuff. He was <laughs> no, in the Boston Globe. No, he, he was the guy that stole all your mail. We didn't steal it, he just didn't deliver it. That's called stealing yeah. it, I believe. When you don't deliver something and somebody else's is called stealing. And when he died. There was a big story went, in the Globe about Yeah, it was him. unbelievable. They went into his house and he had a small little house. And it was up to the ceiling of all know, this undelivered mail. Story. People were wondering, where's my bill from Filene's or whatever? Where's your check? It was in his house. But when you have a regular mail deliverer, letter yep. carrier, you know the problem. I you wouldn't do. mind letting him in the house. Nope. Now we have a her. They just switch. But uh, that's fine. You don't know who the Amazon del- – I mean, you see them. and I assume you'll have the badge number or something on the system. It's still creepy, at least to me. Dean and Westport, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. I've never called, but I really like listening to your show. Thanks. And, um, Thank you. I, I just wanted to mention, <clears throat> excuse me, I I have a, a different thought about the way that this um, Amazon is is going to have an effect on you know more people like me you know okay. just like regular guy it's mm-hmm. it's gotten to a point now here it is the holiday seasons and a lot of people will probably really be excited to get this you know Amazon feature and to me I think about. I don't. I, there's uh, not many stores I really even want to go to around Christmas time because those giant corporations don't want to hire any cashiers. Sometimes you know you're, you're there and it's like every line is like ten. You're right. 10 people watch. Yeah, that's a good point. So what? What is it? What do they want? Is it like? Is it a matter of the ultimate profits? They're gonna cut as much of the staff. Yeah, it's exactly. crazy. Well, the the, the goal is to have. Almost no human beings. And by the way, one of the companies that is most people believe is going to elevate that to an art form is Amazon. A lot of people believe that the ultimate goal with Whole Foods, while Jeff Bezos hasn't confirmed this, Dean, is to essentially have an employee-free or virtually employee-free store you know, Dean, where everything is scanned and you can't get out without having you know put it on your credit but card. Dean, that's the point I was just raising about buying stuff online. Then you go to the actual store and you're right. You, you can't get anybody to wait on you and the lines are long. So, so it, it's like the companies themselves have made the online shopping more attractive. And these aren't Amazon. These, This is like... By giving you crappy service, you mean? Yes. Dean, that was a good call. Thanks. Do another one soon, please. Uh, let's squeeze in one more. Jody from Rhode Island, I think. Hi, Jody. 30 seconds, Jody. Hi. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. You guys are great, by Thanks. the way. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I have the luxury of not having to do this. I agree with Jim. It's a little creepy because I live in the suburbs. I can leave the package out. No one's going to take it. But I have lived in cities in neighborhoods that aren't so great. And if I was a city person and I could afford it for security reasons of someone stealing my package, I probably would do it. Yeah. But I probably would want some more in the contract, you know, like some sort of, okay, we're going to make sure that 
you know, if something is stolen, I they bet, can be um, held yeah. liable. You know, I don't know. I'm not I bet you that I, I would have. I, well, I agree with you. you got to think, Jody, that Amazon is going to, you know, is obviously thinking about this problem. Obviously. And since they've seemed to th- thought through all these other things that make your delivery so easy, I would imagine that that's going to be part of the deal. Wouldn't you think? I hope. Jody, yeah. good point. Thanks for the call. We appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, okay. By the way, the one thing we should have said that Jody just touched upon, which we hadn't talked about at all, it's three hundred forty-nine dollars to get this service. Two hundred fifty dollars for the camera, well, and one the shot deal. smart lock, and yeah, that's it's a lot of money. Yeah, it is a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Coming up from the Department of Irony, uh, the leader of Boston's Freedom uh, Freedom Speech Rally is suing Mayor Walsh for exercising his free speech. Former Suffolk County Sheriff and Secretary of Public Safety Andrea Cabral joins us for that and more. She is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. At noon on today's Boston Public Radio, we're joined by former Secretary of Public Safety, Andrew Cabral. Cash bail keeps many poor people in jail for minor crimes. So people in the religious community are lobbying to end it. We'll get Andrea's take. The Globe's Alex Beam on Donald Trump's fake Renoir that he's insisted is real, despite the facts, for 20 years. Oh, well. Plus, the war against sugar and naughty French dogs is spoiling the presidential palace. Now they're off to the presidential doghouse. Then from 1 to 2, a full hour, Attorney General Moore Healy will take our questions and yours. All that coming up on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Hello again, Jim. Hey, I just want to reiterate something that uh, the national news just said, because maybe you went out of the room or did something while you're waiting for us to come back. Uh, the the uh, House version of that budget thing that we discussed with Chuck Todd this morning, which would allow the Senate to pass whatever tax cutting it does by only 50 votes, which means they don't need any Democratic support, uh, did pass 216 to 212. And the only amendment I'd give to what was said by the, uh, um, my apologies, I don't know who the anchor was on NPR, I wasn't listening carefully enough, is she said it was a $1.5 trillion tax break. That's not true. Uh, it's $1.5 trillion that has been authorized, but as we discussed with John Gruber, I don't know when it was, two days ago, it could be trillions more to satisfy all of the breaks that are contemplated for the wealthy, and they're just going to say things like, well, the economic impact is going to be so great, even though it never has been for trickle-down economics, that it will fill the hole that's created beyond $1.5 yes. trillion. But the important message out of this is now the Senate is free to go ahead and try to get 50 votes for some sort of uh, tax-cutting thing. So we will uh, follow Although, up. as I said before with Chuck Todd, 
the, uh, polls taken that's yesterday true. show that 30% of the American people aren't falling for it. In any case, that's the update. Here with us in studio. I mean, three. only 30%. Right. I mean, 70% are not falling for it. Very excellent math. Here with us in Studio Thank 3 you. for another edition of Law and Order is Andrew Cabral. Andrew's the former Suffolk County Sheriff and the former Secretary of Public Safety and is one of my colleagues, otherwise known as Howard Calls You. Welcome, AC. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Um, it should be noted, you know, for, hyster- for history and all posterity, yeah. that's the largest congressional redistribution of wealth in the history of this country. Probably will be. Yeah. Well, all of the nonsense about, you know, Obama wanting to redistribute wealth, Congress is actually redistributing wealth from the bottom to the top. Yeah, it, I'm hoping. It, this is I'm so, hoping so shameful. People won't fall for it, and so far, well, there, it seems that they're not. But anyway, I wanted to ask you: when we did the debate, um, Jim and I did a, a debate the other night with uh, Marty Walsh and Councillor Tito Jackson, who is challenging him. For, oh, that's the mayor's yeah. race you're talking yes, about. Yes, yeah, the mayor's the race. race, and we had a poll that showed 78% of the Bostonians polled and 91% of African Americans want body cameras on the cops. And we were talking to the mayor about why it's taking so long for Boston to get them, one of the only cities without them. Now I read this study from Salon. Well, it's not a study from Salon. It's reporting from Salon, talking about how um, body cameras seem to have little impact on police officers' behavior and didn't, according to the American Civil Liberties Union, don't necessarily increase trust in the cops. So I found that rather depressing. What do you make of that? Well, I think the idea of body cameras, it's, it's always been interesting to me, people who make the argument that body cameras would prevent behavior. Body cameras would never... I'm one of those people, by the way, who was naive enough to believe it was going to prevent behavior. So go ahead. I know. It's, I did. It's a constant effort to educate you, Jim. <laughs> um, go ahead. But, but it, it's, it, it is in, it's not any more effective at preventing behavior than laws against murder are, prevent, are effective at pre- preventing point. murder. You put them in place, however, so that people who engage in that activity are well aware of what the penalties are. Um, but I think there was, you know, to have an expectation that they would change behavior, it probably was more of a hope that some people would be more cognizant of their yeah. behavior. But I don't think there was ever really an actual expectation, at least not in uh, the African-American community, um, but it, but having the cameras there prevents people from lying about what happened after it happens after it happens, right? Okay. So, so uh, still good. It, it's still good. Okay. I still say the body cameras are absolutely necessary wait, wait, because wait, wait, the camera photographs what it sees. Well, wait a second. It, it prevents them from lying about it? You mean like when the cops in Chicago said Laquan McDonald was walking towards us no, in no, a menacing no. way? I should have said prevents the... them from successfully oh. lying about it when the video is released and then compared to... Uh, police reports okay. that say something completely different from what actually okay. happened. Well, we had Matt Taibbi in with us here the other day, and we had, I had He's him on terrific. TV last night who wrote the book I Can't Breathe, which was obviously about Eric Garner's death and the fallout, and he he agrees that it it's not changing things the way I naively thought. However, I want to add one thing to your list that I think is a plus. Public sentiment about almost everything takes time. It's sort of like you know turning right. one of those huge ships. Some things go quickly. Most don't. I refuse to believe that in a decent country like this, when you see Walter Scott shot in the back, Eric Garner choked to death, Laquan McDonald shot when he's doing exactly the opposite of what the police in Chicago, and on and on and on like this, that over time, it's not going to change sentiment in this country. You may think that's naive too, but I think people are better than just watching video 
of mostly young black men and an occasional woman getting what I consider to be murdered, even though they're rarely indictments, and just blow it off and move on. I appreciate your optimism. I, I, am, I am not sure that that will happen because I think that, um, you know, if you count back from the year of the first um, one of these killings that we heard about, it's been several years and many more killings, and That's the decency true. just hasn't quite emerged uh, as much as uh, we'd like to think that it exists. I think that the value in the body cameras is having a a fairly objective record of what happened yeah. because that's that to me is the value is that for centuries what we have relied on is the official account of what has happened and families have had to just sort of live with that mm-hmm. despite their knowing that that it was something different that's the value in the body camera so people will I, it, it shifts the burden to police officers the burden goes from the family of the victim having to prove that the victim was not at fault and didn't cause their own death. It shifts the burden to the police officer when you look at their police report and say, why does the camera show something different than what you've written? And for police officers who are honest in their police reports and who act, it'll it'll, it'll actually help them to the extent that things are reported that where they've done wrong, where they haven't done wrong, the body camera will show that. By the way, on that note, I should say, when we've asked Commissioner Evans every single month about how the cops, not the public, we asked the public too, are reacting to the body camera pilot, which is now off, as Marjorie asked in her question to Mayor Walsh the other night, he says he hasn't gotten one, I believe he has said he's not gotten one negative comment from uh, one of his police officers. But you know, so. one last thing, I, I thought it was encouraging um, that in Boston so many uh, White Americans, I mean white Americans, white Bostonians in the, in the poll were acknowledging we're supposedly the most racist city in America, one of the most racist cities in America. <laughs> We've been talking about this for months, that people acknowledge that this is a problem. Why would anybody oppose it except on the cost front? Because I think a lot. if you were like a, a nasty person and said the hell with these young black guys getting oh, killed, okay. you would say, no, I okay. don't want to hamper the cops. We don't but very the few cops. people w- would say that in a survey anyway because you there's always a difference between the way that you – like to think yeah, that you are no. in the way that you may actually be, and I'm not saying that people answered the survey uh, dishonestly, but I, but I'm, and I, and I think that people should. I can't figure out why anybody would be against them um, uh, either. So I'm glad that people answered that way. But it, the, the where the rubber meets the road is when you are willing to speak up about a thing, and maybe that's something that this survey shows that doesn't affect you. Yeah. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's yeah. where you find out how people really feel. When it's not their relatives being deported, it's yeah. not their their friends and loved ones being incarcerated. If people still speak up and it becomes they think of it as a, as much of a problem for them as it is for the people who are directly affected, then you know yeah. you've made some progress. Or just a justice problem and and right. which I think which it is clearly a, which is. an injustice is a problem for yes. everybody. So let's move on to this guy that does is is suing the city because he lost his job and the he mayor. Would, He's suing the mayor. Yes, exactly. I'm sorry. He's suing the mayor, not the city. He's suing Mayor Walsh for slander, um, saying that the mayor repeatedly characterized the event speakers at the rally that we had right after Charlottesville on the Boston Common, called that the mayor called them white supremacists and hate groups, members of neo-Nazis. Um, he says he was not among – he was not one of those people. He's a free speech kind of guy, libertarian, and he lost his job. What do you make of this? Well – First of all, if you recall, Marjorie, we did the GBH show uh, that oh, day. Oh, we did. On the rally. We were there. That's right. And uh, we, were, I know, I certainly did. I think you did as well. Yeah. Repeatedly said that there was a long list of speakers mm-hmm. and that some came from different 
Um, I just want to put us in the clear That's with, right. with That's Mr. Right. Navram, we did do that. Who, who seems to be fairly litigious. So what I didn't understand when I read the story was he said he was he said that what the mayor said resulted in him losing his job. That's the way the story is written, except right. later in the story it says that he actually was let go from his consulting job, I think it was, at a tech company um, a week before right. the thing that happened. In, it was right after Charlottesville. Yeah, but, but he would argue before... that it was anticipation because the mayor didn't want to, uh, 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 even on our show and everywhere else, Commissioner Evans was saying, I don't want them to come here. I hope they don't come here. The mayor was too. So I think But nobody point... knew who was speaking. So no, I think... Was that true? I, I don't I think there, there was, was a, a, there okay, was a list of everybody who was speaking in those early, early days. In fact, we were surprised when we were doing the, the, the show live that day when we did get a list of everybody who was speaking because there were some that weren't showing up. and they were So the headliners were always sort of the white supremacists, right? The guy who goes by the name of Baked Alaska. Yeah, um, and then they dropped and then, out. And then they all dropped out. And I think that's those are the people that the mayor was referring to, referring to the headliners. It's It's, you know... I, I understand the point that he's trying to make. I think it'll be an uphill uh, battle to say that it was the mayor's slander that caused him um, to lose his job because you would pretty much have to, I think, prove that the mayor was talking about him. And there were people who probably didn't know at, at least Well, you not only have day. to prove the mayor was talking about him, but that the employer or the supervisor who decided to Act, fire him right. acted based upon right. the mayor's word. But you know, right. who knows? Maybe he... Right. Well, I that's guess. what discovery's for, right? That is a very funny right. point. Well, Thank it, you. We all think, I think in retrospect, it would have been uh, good if we had heard these people that day and we could not Speakers. hear Speakers. Yes. Right. In any case, we're talking to uh, Andrea Cabral. Andrea, I love this. Marjorie does too. These religious activists uh, in Texas, I think, are lobbying really hard. And, and it's not just a movement there, by the way. The story is written as if no one else is raising this point. It's been raised a lot in the last 12 to 24 months. That cash bail is not only unfair to low-income people, it's unconstitutionally unfair. And the well, I was going to say what the reason is, but explain to people who we've all grown up with the notion that they generally set a cash bail at a level the judges do in the perfect world to make it more likely or most likely that you're going to return to court on the next uh, appearance. And on its face, that's not, well, that's not an unreasonable thing. But it is. And what's the what's the problem with this? Well, the problem is that um, bails are routinely set that people cannot make. Um, there's a huge, there's a significant and should be almost uh, overwhelming presumption that a person will be at liberty while their case is um, uh, being brought to trial. Um, there are a list of reasons that judges will set bail. The the chief one is the reass- is to assure the court that someone will return, but there are a series of other reasons, including the seriousness of the offense and so on and so forth. But bail over time um, has not only uh, become sort of institutionalized in that it is very, very routine to set a cash bail, and that becomes uh, a way for people to do time in jail before they're even adjudicated guilty of anything. <clears throat> it's also become a financial anchor for the trial court because people do, do actually default, and they do routinely lose that. Some people default because they go to they go to work versus going to court because they don't want to lose their jobs. Um, some people default because they're just never coming into court. But when you default, whoever put up that cash bail loses that money, and that money actually goes wow. um, into – I think it goes into the general fund. I don't know that it goes directly to the trial court, but I'm sure a portion of it goes to the trial court. And this is a cross-section of clergy who have joined um, through an amicus curiae brief – 
who have joined uh, this lawsuit uh, challenging the constitutionality of cash bail because of its disproportionate impact on poor people. And it's Catholics and Baptists and, um, you know, uh, various other um, uh, religious uh, groups. And they've all they're all are basically making the same argument that it is. You know, and they give three examples uh, of uh, and these are defendants that are that are uh, plaintiffs in this class action suit. This one woman is a waitress and a mother of a four-year-old. She's arrested for allegedly driving with a suspended license, which is a misdemeanor, and given 2500 cash bail. So she's in jail for two days. And then they talk about someone else, a pregnant woman with two kids at home. She's arrested for falsely identifying herself to a police officer. Her bail was set at $5,000. It's prohibitive. And she's in jail for four days. Right. And they point out in the story that if you are a poor mother without family, you know what happens to the other two kids at home? They're hauled out to foster care, and then you could go through a week's or right. month-long process to get your children right. back. Can I add one thing to this list, please, who we've discussed many a time, a young man who ended up killing himself after being stuck in Rikers Island and oh, hanging himself, Khalif Browder, $3,000 bail, and the family couldn't come up with whatever the cash alternative was, 900 or eight, well, whatever the alternative right. was. They couldn't come up with it. He was ending up in jail, stayed in solitary, and he's dead. Right. Um, uh, there's there's really no question. I mean, that's a, that those bails for those charges are prohibitive. And you know what? A lot of there are definitely people who drive without a license. Um, certainly, if if it's connected to an OUI or something like that, that's a particularly um, serious offense. But a lot of times, people have their licenses suspended because they owe parking tickets, and if they can't pay the parking tickets, they certainly can't yeah. pay the bail. So you've got to kind of pick your poison. Do you want the money to be paid to the registry for the parking tickets, or do you want somebody to pay for bail? Because once the person gets out, those parking tickets are still there, and they're going to end up getting rearrested for the same thing. And people have to drive because they have to go to work. So the, this is basically saying there should be a risk assessment that is made. Every every county should have a risk assessment uh, agency that that. Uh, does an assessment of everyone who comes before the court to see what the actual risk is that they pose to not returning okay. to court. And based on that, you set some conditions versus a cash Well, that's cash where I want to go. By the way, for those who don't think this is a big problem in California, 62% yeah. of the jail population is made up of pretrial detainees who are unable to post bail, I think that's in Massachusetts. I don't know if it's too? as high in Massachusetts, but the majority, at least at the county level, are not in the House of Correction. I think the majority mm-hmm. are in the jail. So uh, getting back to what you said about 30 seconds ago, Andrea Cabral, if uh, cash bail is done away with, if it's found to be unconstitutional, and if a an appropriate authority, a judge or some entity, determines that you are at risk of not reappearing at your next court thing, uh, what do you do? What is the thing? What is the condition? What are the kinds of things you can do as opposed to cash in, all, in lieu of cash that make it more likely they will show up? What's an example of well, them? Well, yeah, I don't think that they're talking about doing away with cash bail altogether because clearly for certain kinds of cases and serious crimes, there there will still be okay. a cash bail that's imposed. But if, if you're looking at a certain category of cases for um, uh, poor people and the offenses are not as serious... Um, I, they, there's everything from electronic monitoring to oh, yeah, conditions of, of release. Yeah. They, you'll have to take the money. There are two, there are two things here. Along with these kinds of stories about who is saying that we shouldn't have, we should do away with cash bail uh, because of its disproportionate impact, there needs to be an assessment of how much the money from defaulted cash bails 
is shoring up the trial court system because that money has to be replaced by the legislature. Plus, you have to fund, and you notice the appropriation that's listed in California, there's no appropriation for that, and they're saying every county needs to have a risk assessment agency. You also are going to need to put more people in probation or even parole to, to keep an eye on people who are, are now mm-hmm. supposed to be meeting these conditions, whether you have them coming to the office at a time that they can make after work or you have people dropping by their homes to make sure that they're still there and they're still abiding by the conditions. So the money's going to have to shift, but you're going to also have to figure out how much all of this default money has been shoring up the system because I think that's been happening for a couple of decades now. We're talking to Andrew Cabal, former sheriff of Suffolk County, former secretary of public safety for the Commonwealth. So... There's this guy, Tory Smith, plays the Philadelphia Eagles. Apparently, his mother uh, was a felon. She was in a very abusive relationship, and she became a felon because she defended herself from her abuser and wounded the abuser, which drives me crazy, but this used to happen a lot, Mm -hmm. and wound up being convicted of that crime. And he talks about how she could only work these terrible, very poorly paying jobs for years because she was a felon. Tell the story about Smith and his teammate, Malcolm Jenkins, and this other guy, Chris Long, the Philadelphia Eagles, what they're trying Chris to Long do. Chris Long is Howie Long's son. Yes, he is. Howie Long not, from yeah. Charlestown. He is, Chris, I, I have to say, I, I've been, uh, you know, he, he really has been with Kaepernick and, um, uh, you know, very supportive of Kaepernick, and he's, he, he's here being supportive of his teammates. And so Jenkins and Smith... And Long, I think Long went with them, addressed the legislature. In Harrisburg. Harrisburg, In Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Okay. And came to them and and basically said, this is why it is so important that people's criminal records don't follow them forever. Because apparently, once uh, his mother was able to get her records sealed... She educated herself, I think, while she was in prison, and mm-hmm. I completely agree with you. It still makes me crazy. It's, it's not in, it's still an isolated incident. There are still women who fight back against their abusers and end up being the ones Remember that go the to jail. Remember the family ace? Right, right. Um, but she educated herself while she was in prison, got her degree, and I think she got a, a, post, a, a postgraduate degree as well, and she's now making six figures. Six figures. And she's in the business Bought world. Bought a house. And bought a house, the yep. whole thing. And he was a sort of a living, breathing example of the unending generational consequences that, that can ensue when people aren't given an opportunity yeah. um, to sort of change their lives. And it won't necessarily happen with everyone, but we're at a point in this country where we should want everyone who can do better to, to have an opportunity to do better. And By the Jenkins, way, but aren't these... I'm sorry. I was just going to say, Jenkins talked about his brother who was 20 and he got arrested for having a small amount of marijuana and he became a felon too. Even And now years later, he hasn't reoffended. He hasn't done anything else wrong, but he's in the same situation where he can't get a, a decent job and happily his brother pays in the NFL so we can loan him some bucks. Well, Isn't this a- exactly what Deval uh, Patrick... Isn't this wasn't this Corey reform that happened? That's what they're doing. Right. That's talking right. About, yeah, that's that's exactly. And and it's you know it's Criminal now record he, reform. I'm sorry. We had gotten to the point where the federal government in the in the agency of the Department of Justice was actually getting on board with all of this, and was kind of following some of the states who were more progressive on this stuff. And now we're we're regret we've regressed back under Sessions, so we're not getting that leadership from the federal government. But the hope is that the states see the value in it, see the money savings in it, and see the inherent decency of it, and continue to do that kind of reform. So you don't you haven't felt that Sessions is growing in the office? You don't think he's? 
Okay, we're talking to Andrew <laughs> Cabral. I just was curious if she. Oh God! Now before it gives me the heebie-jeebies. You know, we wouldn't have mentioned this story. And Marjorie was saying, "Why are you interested in this story?" This is a weird story in Forbes magazine about how you can now stay in a replica in San Francisco of an Alcatraz prison cell. I went. Have you guys been to Alcatraz? You no, I've taken the boat. It's it is fun and a weird. You go in Al Capone's uh, jail. I don't know if you can go in Whitey Bolt. Whatever it was. But you know what it reminded me of, which is the only reason I left it on our list to talk to you about Andrew Carell, because I was wondering what we do in Massachusetts. When I was a young lawyer, long, long ago, when I was doing criminal defense before I started doing housing and whatever I was doing, for, the, for what I think was the first time in the country, uh, judges in, near, in Manhattan criminal court decided in, collectively to spend the night in lockup. Uh, because one of the judges, whose name I forget, said, you know, we sentence people here. We have no idea what life is like there. We have no idea what they're sentencing them to. Maybe we should, even though it's going to be artificial, because obviously we're not going to be treated like there, we'll at least understand the conditions. And they did it. And I don't want to say the world changed, but something changed. There was a whole new perspective. Is that done? I mean, do 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 judges, and you're a former prosecutor, do prosecutors have firsthand knowledge, even to the point of staying overnight or being locked up themselves again they know they're going to get out so there's obviously a difference does that kind of thing happen or was that a one and done kind of thing years ago when i first started as a prosecutor we did and that was in middlesex county um when scott hoshbarger was da we toured we just toured Mm -hmm. um uh county house of correction and um uh the state prison i think there are some county some da's offices where there's still a tour i don't believe that there are any overnights um, I have not certainly not heard recently of any judges doing that. And you're right. It, it, it's, it's artificial to the degree that you know that you're getting out. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to make it through a right. certain period of time. But it does have an impact. I can tell you that, no, you know, for all the time I was a prosecutor, it was when I became sheriff and daily listened to the sound of that door closing, wow. which has a there is probably next to the word finality. In the dictionary, there should be a little audio button you can push really? that is the sound of that door closing. Um, and oh. it really does have an impact on you. And the sights and the sounds really do have an impact on you. And you, if you're a person of any kind of conscience, and you hope that most of your judges are and your prosecutors are, you come out thinking, what if it wasn't just for tonight? Um, what would I – so when you, you so you should think of that. That's it, that's, it, should, be, it should happen all the time. And I don't know that – um, it does beyond tours that may be happening, but it should happen all the time. You know, it's interesting uh, on, a, uh, on a related uh, note. Again, as you, we both have said, it's obviously qualitatively very different because you know you're getting out the next morning or whatever. Right. It, it, we're all so used to freedom that even the temporary uh, taking away of that freedom. Chelsea Manning was being interviewed by somebody on NPR. I don't know who was doing it. I'm sorry. I can't. Oh, it was the New Yorker uh, uh, Hour or whatever yep, that thing is yep, called on the yep. weekend here, which is a fabulous show. It is fabulous. I love and it. a New Yorker reporter who had written about Chelsea Manning was interviewing Chelsea Manning and talking about solitary confinement in her case. And what she said, which, you know, I've heard before, but made me think for a second uh, when the interviewer said, so describe what it was like and why did it have the impact that you as dramatic and as horrible as you. She said, one, I didn't think I'd ever get out. But secondly, she says, go lock yourself in your bathroom which is roughly the size of a solitary cell, and just stay there. Stay there for a day. Stay there for two days. Again, even though, you know, and, you know, and as I'm driving along thinking, it does, it, it in small ways at least changes your perspective. And, and so, what you hope is that it changes people in terms of who they think should have freedom and who they think shouldn't have freedom. Yeah. Because that's really the linchpin 
It's not just whether or not you can go through it as a judge because you expect that you will be treated differently for the rest of your life and that no one will target you for anything. You're surprised when that happens and you rail against it when it happens. But that there are people that who come before you every single day that you think have somehow gotten used to it. Well, they haven't. You know, you know, the thing you mentioned about the door closing, yeah. I visited your jail, the Suffolk County lockup, and I visited Walpole once, which is maximum security. And you are so right because you realize I can't get out. I, you know, if something happens, I can't get out. You have to depend on somebody, and those doors make such an awful noise, and the sound of the keys jangling. You are right; it is really upsetting. Is that right. intent? You know, I never thought of this till you and Marjorie just said this. Just like when I was growing up, when you flicked the light switch, it went click, and then there was this brilliant invention twenty-five years ago where it doesn't make any noise at all. I assume prison cells could be constructed in a way well, the doors. so that you don't have the, the, the loud clang. But it's and, the doors before you even get to the prison well, cells. Well, whatever they are. But, I mean, is that well, a conscious... Well, sal- they're sally ports, right? So a sally port door uh, opens on one end to let people in, and it'll open on the other end to let people out. And the rule is that the sally port... No, the two sally port doors can never be open, open at, at the same, same time. time. Right. So you have to... You hear... And they're sliding very, very heavy doors. There is... They're, to contain, but they're also to you know to keep out, right? So you can that's the, that's the noise that you really hear. I mean, there are I'm, I don't know how many jails across the country still have the bars, you know, and I'm sure that there are old enough jails here in Massachusetts that still have they're the old fashioned bars, but most cell doors are sort of sliding. At least in, in Suffolk County, they're sliding doors, um, or they may close, they may open and close, but they're not the bars, right? But they do make a noise. But they, that's intimidating. And they absolutely. And I'm asking, an is that not intentional to create a a no, an environment? No, no. It's not. I don't think so. No, I think that's purely a matter of operational um, necessity, and you do need to have something that heavy. It's just that that's the sound that it makes, and it's pretty final. Do we have time, do we have time for? I'm not, uh, yeah, one we can more do. Thing. We squeeze one more thing. Out. You know, um, I read this thing about handgun people. Th- three million Americans carry handguns loaded, Concealed, loaded handguns um, every single day. Those are the daily well, ones. Well, yeah, those are the daily ones. Nine million carry it at least once yes. a month. <laughs> and they said, which I found fascinating. For if I wish I was a sociologist or a psychologist, they said that the the ones who ha- carry them once a month were disproportionately conservative men between the ages of 18 and 29 residing in southern states. And I thought to myself, that is when you're the, the height of your physical strength, a young, strong man, late teens, early 20s. What are these guys so afraid of? You know, I, I found that odd. Is it there some, their masculinity is constantly challenged? You think of women that walk around you know, that are always, we all know, you're fighting off a sexual assault at every second, practically. What do you and think they're afraid of? I think they're afraid of black men being stronger than they are. That's what I think. <laughs> they're afraid of everything that they've been told to be afraid of yeah. for the last, I don't know how many years. And they've been told to be afraid. If you if you look at the ads that the NRA has up on their on their channel they should be i'm sorry i'm not a censorship person but no one should be allowed to air these ads they are absolutely a call to civil war and race baiting in of the worst possible sort and politicians republican politicians have been telling um uh white men to be afraid of 
of everything, that someone was going to take their guns, that someone was going to take away their freedom, that there'd be retaliation for all, for all the things that they've done to other groups over the years. And there's that. And there's also that sort of inherent resentment. And it's not a coincidence that it's in the southern states, because I think they've kind of been waiting to refight the Civil War since the Civil War ended. So, you know, the people are, their behavior, you're right, being a sociologist and looking at it, you know, Delving into that behavior and why it exists, I do think has some value, but there are tons and tons and tons of people of, of color in the United States of America that really don't need a study to tell you why all those guys are carrying guns. Yeah, okay. And let's also keep in mind that between 18 and the end of the 20s, as we discussed with uh, with uh, the doctor that came on the show the time I co-hosted with you, Jim, mm-hmm. the frontal oh, lobe yeah, yeah. thing, yeah, yeah, they're still in the whole risk-reward yeah. part of uh, their frontal lobe hasn't, you know, that that consequences and values and all those things that, you know, give you judgment, that hasn't happened yet. So we're we're letting, we're letting people get guns before they have the ability to actually rationalize the consequences of their behavior. Remember, our, remember our colleague used to carry a gun? I do. We, we're into, not going to, don't ask who it, it is. Came into but this, I can't, you know, why can't former I Former radio it colleague, because I don't know if it was a we, public No, thing. I don't know if we should say, we'll tell you when we get off you the air. You guess who it is, we'll But, but you know, you never right. know what's going to happen when you come into Boston. <laughs> don't guess or, anymore. Or when you go to New Hampshire. Boston, New Hampshire. I mean, you're taking your life in your hands. Michael's back in town, by the way. He's moved back to Massachusetts. So. Yeah. Watch out. Is he back? It Watch was, out. It was not Michael. Okay, fine. Nice to okay, see you, Andrea. A little nice bird coming up. Oh, Andrea Cabral, I forgot to give you your outro here. Andrea Cabral joins us every week. She She's does. former Suffolk County Sheriff and Secretary of Public Safety. Thank you very much, Andrea. Coming up. A little bird told everyone about James Comey's Twitter alias. Alias, too. Alias, excuse me. Reinhold Niebuhr. I think I pronounced that right. Why did the former FBI director choose that moniker? It's the subject of Alex Beam's explainer, the highly esteemed world-celebrated explainer. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. Here with us in Studio 3 is Alex Beam. And as we do every time Alex is here, we marvel that his name is Alex Beam. Because when you read one of his columns, Alex de Tocqueville comes to mind because you ask yourself, what the heck has Alex been token? Hello, Alex Bean. How are you? <laughs> it's seltzer, not beer. That was a good one, I thought, Absolutely actually. Absolutely ruined. That actually was pretty good. I felt pretty good I thought you were going to say, Alex de Tocqueville, because no one reads him either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, he, well, actually, he said a couple of great things that we all remember, right? That race was going to plague the United States of America forevermore. He wrote, what did he write, that in 1820 or something? I know, but I feel wow, like de Tocqueville's one of these people's... First of all, congratulations. And second of all, I feel like he's always kind of quoted or invoked, but not read that much. Yeah, well, I just read him in school. I haven't read him since I was in college, but I do remember that point, and I thought that was a, a very prescient yeah, point. Yeah, he, he also noted uh, America was more religious than France, which was a, a very— cur- Still true. Still true. Still Pro- true. Proved to be correct. Yeah, and the and how much greater our, our equality was, which, alas, is not true anymore. Right, and he and he genuinely admired uh, the kind of Americans' ability to remake themselves, to 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 try something, fail, and try again. Yeah, um, 
which is interesting. Oh, those are the days, Alex. <laughs> yes, yes, our bourgeois value. Oh, by the way, <laughs> Trump just tweeted, said the Tocqueville is doing great work. So I just... <laughs> yeah, okay. Just excellent. So excellent. this is an upcoming Globe column, but we're going to preview it anyway, because oh, I really like this. Uh, tell us about the Dilbert guy. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. This is great. I um I I did I, not know this by the way. Oh really? No, I did oh, not. I'm kind of, you know I wrote it just kind of thinking that the the Globe readers might not know this, but so any but 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 people who spend time hanging around right wing media sites know who Scott Adams is, and I I you know I have a soft spot of course for for Bill Watterson, Calvin and Hobbes, you know the the great cartoons of our time, and Dilbert is I think one of the great cartoons of our time. And its creator Scott Adams, I mean, I is is I mean, just to make it simple, is kind of a right wing troll, a uh, very intelligent guy, sixty one years old. I mean, the more you learn about him, uh, the spookier he becomes in some ways. You know, it, it's widely known. Of course, he he was a financial analyst. I mean, he worked in a cubicle farm. He's very intelligent. He has a business background, and you know, was it in the last few years, he has a very active blog. He uses Periscope, the sort of the video blog system. Um, and I, you know, literally two years ago, on my own, on my Facebook feed, people said, "Well, Scott Adams is predicting that Donald Trump is going to win." This is in August of 2015, and this is just laughable. I mean, that is the stupidest possible prediction, one that he then repeated um, just a couple weeks before the election. And I, I, you know, I guess I have a weak spot for people who are right. I, I, I but kind tell of, us why he thought it, though. I mean, I think it's, he's got a lot of great points about why he thought he'd win. The yeah. weaponizing of humor. He talked about how Trump's tweets low-energy jeb and how uh, humor's a great uh, tool of persuasion, he said. And this, I thought, was really interesting. When he talked about um, making Mexico pay for the wall, he said that was thinking past the sale. In other words, the technique that salesmen use, car salesmen use, you don't when they asked you whether you want the red Honda or the green Honda, presuming you're going to buy the Honda. So who's going to pay for the wall? Presumes there is going to be a wall, right? It's not what there's, he's yeah, talking about I, in your I, I agree. I mean, I, I think Adams, Adams is flogging a book. He has about three or four other ideas like this one, uh, fairly simple to understand. Thinking past the sale got me thinking about Trump's tweets and thinking about how they often make me think twice. And Scott Adams is saying, well, really, that's their purpose. That means he's got your attention. And, I mean, God knows Trump is very gifted at getting our attention. And then lastly, I mean, you know, I I can talk about this forever, obviously, but um, Adams is not the first but it's not uninteresting, and I had not known that Norman Vincent Peale uh, was a f- close Neither friend of I. Trump's father and officiated at Trump's first wedding, um, which is really quite interesting because Trump is obviously not religious and somewhat disdainful of religion. But Norman Vincent Peale wasn't necessarily a, a religious figure per se, although he was the head of a church, in fact, in, in, in New York City. But P, uh, what Adams and others are saying is that, you know, Peel, for a different generation, not our generation, but our parents' generation, was super famous for writing this book called The Power of Positive Thinking. Yeah. And, and Adams, again, with a, I think, you know, invoking his sort of business background, realized that w- one thing that Peel, and he, he, he includes Ronald Reagan in this as well, is, and again, Persuasion, you know, The Hidden Persuaders by Vance Packard was a huge bestseller in the 1950s. The, there was this great belief in techniques of persuasion. And one of Peel's things was, 
in a sense, you can persuade yourself that you're going to have a better life, a better future, specifically a better job by thinking positively. Like, you know, let's think the three of us are going to be nationally syndicated and each be paid a million dollars, you know, which is great. Well, two of us might be. Yeah, I know. I I completely understand that. Adams is into this a lot when he when he Scott Adams when he writes about his own life it's very interesting he talks about yeah. how you know he wanted to be a cartoonist he wanted to be an author and he talks about things that he envisioned for himself that didn't happen getting back to Tocqueville interestingly that Americans are willing to fail and I, I I'm a little bit I don't know I'm a tiny bit embarrassed about this column it's it's not negative enough I like it a I lot mean, can well, I tell you, you I thought the column you. was totally solipsistic. <laughs> Solipsistic. I really did. I mean, I read it, and the word that keeps popping into my head is solipsistic. Yeah. Now, let's not leave this. Let's talk. No, no, no. Let's leave the column yet. I'm not leaving the column. This is another one of these things where, like a four year old, he looks up a word in the dictionary, slips it in that no mere mortal. Did you know what solipsistic meant? I'm looking it up right now. I just looked it up a couple of minutes ago. Was when was the last time you used the word solipsistic in a sentence when you're talking to somebody else? I, uh, I use it fairly often. <laughs> I'm serious. It's a good adjective to describe this guy. Why should we care about some troll cartoonist solipsistic musings on a presidency with ankle high approval ratings and a record of legislative failure? What's that word mean again? I mean, self-involved. 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 There's a lot of synonyms for it, frankly, which are not coming to mind right now because all I can think of is solipsistic. Egomaniacal? How's that for like well, a self-involved word is a good one. Okay. That's yeah. not the part you were supposed to highlight. Oh, it wasn't? I'm no. sorry. That Trump, if you look at it from his perspective, could be one of the most influential presidents in memory. So why is this? You listed these things in your column, Alex. What was your point? Yeah. He doesn't remember. He doesn't no, remember. No, I, I vividly remember, and I even can give you some context. Like I just noticed on Twitter... The forthcoming cover story in Time Magazine is is about the cessation of government regulation. This is, I mean, yeah. I, I cite three things. I cite uh, because I didn't have space. I mean, obviously, environmental regulation is, is DOA. It's finished. Okay. Yep. Uh, and then related fossil fuel regulation, yep. obviously, closely gone. But then I decided to short change it. I mean, basically, all of government regulation is at a standstill. I mean, it, that's a, that's a big generalization, but it's 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 partially and, and largely true. Very scary and then to me. this other thing is this kind of ridiculous. It's been widely. Trump has already appointed two hundred federal judges. Now that is that's in, huge. That's huge. a stroke of evil, huge. of course. Lifetime appointments. It's a stroke of evil because I believe. I mean, it's it's the Senate Republicans who wouldn't let Obama appoint federal judges in the last seven to nine months or year. Of, of his presidency. So there's a huge backlog of federal judges. Trump is appointing them. And the last point I make, actually, uh, was uh, I heard over lunch the other day, and the goss- it's pure gossip, which is that uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy isn't hiring law clerks for the next cycle. Now, Supreme Court law clerks are hired for two years in advance. So people take away from this um, that Kennedy's planning to retire. And so I, in the you know that rumor's been there since Gorsuch was picked because the conventional wisdom, which I do not buy at all, is that Gorsuch – was Gorsuch his clerk, by the way? I can't remember. But that Gorsuch was created in the image of Kennedy. That's and I precisely find, true. He was right, his clerk, yeah. Well, but, but Kennedy is a much more moderate, open-minded person than Neil Gorsuch is. So the theory went, which you've extended, is that when Neil Gorsuch found his footing on the Supreme Court – then Kennedy would say it's safe for me to go because he will take my place, which is complete BS considering Kennedy has been the critical swing vote on tons of things and promises to be the critical swing vote on tons more things. I don't disagree with you. I was told secondhand, attempted to check and failed 
that the semi-authoritative blog called Above the Law reported that Kennedy is not hiring Supreme Court yeah, law. Now, that, now that's, if, that, if that's a fact, it's a big that, deal. that's fascinating. And I mean, again, I, I've thought this through. Okay, the best case scenario, maybe the Democrats get the Senate in 2018, which means that Trump and Chuck Schumer choose the next Supreme Court mm-hmm. justice, which means somebody. But that's only the best case scenario. A, a, a very likely scenario is that the Senate remains Republican and, and, and Trump appoints not only one, but possibly two more. Well, let me just say, I think the theory is solipsistic, but that's your, <laughs> that's your, now, uh, uh, Alex, I want you to tell me, what is this? What I'm, I'm showing you now, we're on radio, so most people can't see it. What am I holding up for you? Do you know what it is? I'm really embarrassed. You don't know? I don't. I do not it's, know. It's an original Mona Lisa. I don't know if you know that I am holding in my hands. Now, why would I be saying that to you? I have literally no idea. Because you have not read the story about the fake Renoir originally on Donald Trump's plane. And oh, oh, then oh, is that, that's, that is solipsistic, your little exactly. joke there. No, okay, thank that you very is, much. Yeah, that's One very... of the great stories of all time. If people haven't seen this, Tim, what's his last name? O'Brien. Tim O'Brien. Yeah, I read this story. He yeah. rides on the, <laughs> the, the plane of the president, has a discussion. The president's bragging about how he's got an original Renoir on the wall. And I think O'Brien says then, well, with all due respect, Donald, he was a citizen then. He wasn't the president. It's actually hanging on the wall of the Art Museum in Art Chicago. Art Institute of Chicago. Art Institute of Chicago. Where he grew up. Yeah, and yeah. he assumed, O'Brien did, that Trump realized it was phony until one of his initial interviews, I guess, up in the Trump penthouse has, well, finish the story. Has the Renoir Well, in the I have my doubts about this story, but I will finish it for you. So O'Brien then sees, yeah, he's giving an interview in Trump Tower and I guess what's it called? Two two girls in something or other. It's a yeah, relatively like that, famous yeah. Renoir. Yeah. And over his shoulder, he sees that uh, Trump has planted the fake Renoir. I really have two to ask. Two sisters on the terrace. Do we know yeah. it's a fake? I mean, the Vanity Fair story that we're all reading, I, you know, says it's a fake. But how do we know Renoir? Can you guys check and see if you're oh, oh, the, mon- the, the Google monkeys? Our they colleagues. won't find out. They won't find out. They'll find he out. didn't create two. How do you know what, go- that a fake is in the art museum of Sh- art in no, Chicago but, but, or whatever? Those impressionists were tapping this stuff out. It's possible there's two of them. It's possible there's two it's of them. It's unlikely anyway. it's two of them. But the part of the point that O'Brien makes, and I, who the genie most of this, whoever did it on CNN was did a brilliant story yep. about it, is it does he believes all this. Everybody who knows him well, who was not in the tank to Donald Trump, says he believes all this stuff. It doesn't matter if it is proven 100% to be untrue. But Scott Adams speaks directly to that point, is that he formulates his own reality. I yeah, mean, exactly. And, and Reagan is, I mean, again, I know there's a lot of resistance to this, but Reagan is another interesting example of a guy who basically lived in kind of a fantasy land. Well, at least right? he had Alzheimer's toward the end. And so he had some excuse, kind of excuse. Right? <laughs> excuse. Does the, yeah, does the president he... now have Alzheimer's? I don't think so. No, I don't, well, it's hard no, to say. No, no, it's not hard to say. I mean, even I read, <laughs> I interviewed the other night one of the 27 shrinks, Dr. Glass, I can't remember, horrible, I, I can't remember his first name, who's one of the 27 psychiatrists and other mental health professionals who wrote in that book, The Danger of Donald Trump or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. And I skimmed a lot of the, not a lot, a handful of the other essays. No one is suggesting he's suffering from dementia or anything like that. They say he has some deficits. Let's put it that way. <laughs> No, I, I don't mean that disrespectfully. These are certified. I've seen the and dementia others. thing leveled at him, frankly, I, fairly early. You, I haven't yeah. seen yes, that. Yes, because the, yeah. you look at his speech patterns now yeah, compared to oh, speech story, patterns. That's true. The stat, stat did the big you're right. story. Yes. Take it back. Sorry. You're right. Yes, yeah. and mm-hmm. that he's not able to talk the way he could. Okay, of so course, who is? Exactly. Alex, we need your advice on something. <laughs> yeah, how can uh, I help? Tom- I forgot about that stat piece. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow we are interviewing at the library the United States ambassador to France. 
And Marjorie and I have had a big debate about because you want to act. Professional. Is that true? Who is the United States ambassador? Well, you'll find out tomorrow when you watch. Oh, this you're keeping show. me hanging. Now, the <laughs> other the point we're trying to make here to this is we're trying to be professional for once, and because it is an ambassador. Yeah. And we're having a debate back and forth. Who should ask him the question about President Macron's dog peeing? <laughs> In the fireplace <laughs> while he's having a meeting with other world right. leaders. Who who do you think is better equipped to ask that question? I don't I don't want to I don't want to gender stereotype anyone, but I but Marjorie and I mean and I both share an interest in pets, so I think Marjorie should be the person. That's right. Well Jim has a pet now too. I do. Do you see my kid did. Do you see the video? Elise Puddle. Do you see the video it? of this thought? Oh, the, of the Macron. Nemo peeing oh, in the fireplace. Is it called Nemo? Nemo's isn't Nemo the I think Nemo's the, the name dog. The dog is yeah. yes, a Labrador Griffin, Griffin cross. I don't know what a Griffin is. Rescue dog, by the way. Which Rescue is dog. Very Macron is in the whatever the equivalent of the Oval Office <laughs> yeah. is over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's NBC. sitting there with other world. I don't even know who the other people are, but some big time leaders. And all of a sudden, in the Lifts background, the dog walks over to the fireplace and pees in the fireplace. <laughs> but he handles it with with great nonchalance. Yes, he does. Nonchalance. That's, right. That's the best part Quesera, of it. It's not the peeing. It's how they all laugh and just. Go about their... <laughs> They're French. You got to do it. Exactly. You do it. Bodily functions. It's a great video. So okay. see, it is a great video. You do video. see dogs in restaurants in Paris, which is rather odd, right? Yeah. Yeah, sitting right there at the table. Well, by the way, you know there's some cities in the United States that have uh, ordinances that allow dogs, in, at least in outside patio In outside kind of patios, yeah. yeah, but not usually inside, sitting at the table. Yeah, I think that's a health code violation. I just get rid of it, frankly. <laughs> okay. Florida, you see dogs everywhere. I mean, so, what do you mean by so, that? I mean, where they were allowed to go into restaurants and things like that? Yeah, because. You know, by the way, I love dogs. That's disgusting. Would you not agree having a dog when you're eating something and the dog is like licking your plate or licking the next plate? That really yeah, is no, disgusting. I, okay. Isn't it? I draw no, the line. No, I kind of yeah. like it if we could have dogs in the restaurants, actually. Hmm. But let's move on. You allege, Alex Beam, in the Boston Globe that there is a war on sugar. I read this. Please make oh. your case. Yeah, that that's a bad headline, you know. I wanted that what that column was meant to be about was meant to be about how like I'm tired of things being called toxic. Oh, and so like I start well, you out. Said with, that. Sort yeah, of. I did eventually. I mean, I was tired of sugar being called toxic. I was glad that this it guy Gary. Yeah, of course. This it's guy Gary Taubes was finally put in his place. We by had, him. We had him on the radio. Yeah. Taubes. Yeah. And we're should, totally on board. He's right. It's a bunch of no, crap. No, excuse me. Oh. Your point, which Gary would agree. Well, Moderation. I call him Gary. Moderation. Gary Tobbs would agree, is you can have some, but when you have more than some, it is. Well, maybe they sold copies of the New York Times Magazine with the headline, Is Sugar Toxic? Question mark. Mm-hmm. And they basically. compared it to heroin and cocaine. Yeah, I think yeah, it's I mean, a little come. bit much. I mean, yeah. Methamphetamine. Uh, Remember the guy with the Krispy Kreme donut flakes on the floor? They arrested him for methamphetamine? Yeah, but that was because the cops made a mistake. It was not because it had a toxic effect. So, what was your. Well, oh, your point thing. was that people exaggerate the threat. Well, from I'm t- also, I don't know. You know, I, I do. I keep a little pile of clips for emergency <laughs> columns. And, <laughs> and I had a, I had Which a clip. Are most for, of them, I would guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm a big fan. Well, I live in my solipsistic world, man. I haven't had an original idea in 26 years. I know, it's tough to come up with something new. There's this clip from the Wall Street Journal declaring that alcohol was toxic. Alcohol, of course, has sugar in it, as we know, so I guess it must be poison. Everything has sugar in it, Water is toxic. Remember we learned that, that if you drink as much water as Tom Brady says you should, you'd be dead? You could die. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to compare it to aspirin. I was going to usher in a non-fact. I thought Sylvia Plath tried to kill herself. Using aspirin. Turns out I was wrong, so I didn't put it in the column. I thought she put her head in the oven. Uh, That's how she successfully killed herself. But when she was a high school senior at Wellesley High School, she tried to kill herself with a combination of sleeping pills and some aspirin. Um, 
But aspirin's a pretty, a fairly ineffectual way to try to kill yourself, although apparently if you take a few hundred, it'll work. But um, I don't know. And then, I mean, like, bread is toxic. I mean, come bleeping on, okay? Fanta is toxic. I found a website declaring Fanta to be... I mean, <laughs> I wish this were Fanta. I wish I was drinking Fanta. I mean... Get, don't give me that look. Seltzer. No, I'm, I'm just that looking, look. no, is this from that same pile that you're talking about this column, or is that the one on? <laughs> is that the one on? Oh, man, the other. I thing wish there. the pile were taller. Exactly. That's for sure. Okay, Alex Bean, how concerned should we be that there may have been cheating in the Iditarod? The very famous, concerned. the who famous. Sh- no, really, very concerned. Who is surprised that this guy is doping the, the dogs. dogs? Really, I was pretty surprised. Okay, good. And this yeah. guy's a big time winner, dogs. Dallas Seavey or whatever his yeah, name is. Yeah, he lost to his father, which is kind of He claims he didn't do it. Weird. <laughs> he claims, yeah. No, no. I Someone actually... came by, a phantom person came by and drugged his dogs. Yeah, That's the his story. The New York Times version of this story has an, has a fascinating series of people who claim that other people administered drugs to them. One now, guy Sarah said, Palin's husband does the I did a rod. Do we know he how he does, finished? He doesn't do it anymore, does he? He doesn't? I don't know. I don't know. know if he does anymore. I don't know either. Can and I he... change the subject because I'm not that interested in this? Wait can a I... minute. <laughs> no, but, but you know, the only reason I have interest in the I did a rod is because you say, you know, someone who can really do this. I, I interviewed, I haven't talked to you about this yet. I interviewed Rory Kennedy the other night, who's a great documentary oh, yes, filmmaker. Oh, yes, it was a great interview. And she's mostly done serious stuff, you know, about Abu Ghraib, Vietnam, that sort of thing. She did a documentary I thought I have no interest in it. It's either called Take a Wave, Take the Wave, the something. About Laird Hamilton, who's the greatest extreme surfer in the history of the world. Do you know this guy? I do not. You should check it out. I mean, you don't you, want to talk about dogs, but you want to talk about no, an extreme because surfer. Surf, I mean, well, I, I mean, the idea it's not that it's not like a beautiful kind of thing. The, this this is one of the most beautiful sports. I mean, I, I'm not. One of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. Do you have any interest in surfing? I actually, to be honest, I'm very, very interested in surfing. We should see the film. I mean, it's what's the film we all saw that... Uh, Endless Ed, Summer. Endless Summer. And I didn't see Endless Summer too, but yeah. I did see Endless Summer. This, by, he is, the reason most people don't know of him outside the surfing world, Laird Hamilton, is because, and he looks exactly like you should look if you're a surfer. <laughs> he doesn't, he didn't believe in competition so much. But he is essentially the groundbreaking, and you're convinced at the end of this thing, arguably the greatest person who ever did that sport ever. And the beauty of these waves that in some cases are like 50 feet high or whatever. Does the documentary get into that incredible thing about that they've all become sort of global meteorologists and that they – a wave can start. It in starts Japan, the whole film, and they'll go here, to, like they know a place in Cameroon where well, they can. Well, they catch don't the say waves. it in these words because she's such a socially conscious person. But she intimates in the beginning of the film, she being Rory Kennedy, who's RFK's youngest kid. For those who don't know, uh, uh, that they celebrate in some perverse way climate change. I don't mean they want the world, but because it creates waves, waves. that would never have been created before. And so they're almost climate change wave chasers in some cases. If that was your, was that your point? No, that was only part of my point, but that's actually more interesting than the point I was going to okay. make. But I read, I read a couple books on surfing a few years ago and with the advent of kind of incredible state-of-the-art meteorological tools. My understanding is a lot of surfers spend time basically in front of their computer monitors and are looking. They can actually see waves forming sometimes mm-hmm. literally a week or 10 days in advance and then they will fly to place X to, to like reap the benefit. Well, variation on that, what this guy invented, and then we're going to get to the infamous explainer, <laughs> is what he invented was using a motorized vehicle, like a jet ski or something, to get out to waves that 
that surfers could never paddle to because they were too far out. And so essentially they could take on far bigger and more vicious and more beautiful waves than they'd ever been able to do before. And then you watch them ride them and you cannot believe this is a human being. Yeah, purists, of course, it is just have no truck with that. No, that's true. He took yeah. a lot of heat for that, but it is just really beautiful. In any case, uh, well, I'm is, much more worried about the, administering this Maybe you can write uh, about, column about that, by the way. About what? Be, someone I actually might be interested in that. In any case, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just, no, I didn't mean that in a bad Christ. way. I meant oh, they might. oh, well, it didn't it's sound like to watch them on those great big, huge waves. So oh my it, god, it must be okay. Oh, oh you were like, beautiful. oh, your boyfriend was in California. Was a big uh, surfer guy. Yeah, you take the winter off every uh, every because uh, they had the Stanford was on the quarter system. Take the winter off to go back to what's the name of your college Kauai roommate that wrote the and, book? And because the, the big waves are. I'm not going to say. There's a book her college roommate wrote that true. describes d- Marjorie and uh, her surfer boyfriend yeah, my surfer on a boyfriend. beach in a state right. of undress, it's back to back. He did have a he did have he did have the one of those Woody station exactly. wagons. Exactly, so I'll rest my case. Made to look for the righteous we were waves. We all young ones. Okay. versus the rude waves. Okay, you know, fine. that surfer lingo. Now I gave know. it away already. I like it. I but like the explainer it. is. Tell us again what the explainer is. I didn't hear you give it away. I did. I you did. said it was infamous. Or Marjorie did, or something. Oh no, yeah, it's already been gone out. Well, oh, it's a, it's a it's say a, what it is. Okay, um, Jim Comey yeah. has had up until very recently a secret Twitter account, and he's called named it after Reinhold Niebuhr, the famous mid twentieth century theologian. Fine. Now the forty five second explainer is about to start, in which I assume you're going to explain why he made that choice. Is that correct? I explain two things, possibly even three. Okay, take it okay. away. Forty five seconds. Well, Go. For, I mean. Comey, in, in, strangely, in, in a video interview somewhere, let slip that he had a Twitter account. And a, really a truly amazing journalist named Ashley uh, Feinberg, who writes for Gizmodo, tech, mm-hmm. tech journalist, made it her goal to find uh, tw- uh, hit Comey's sort of hidden Twitter account. And, and she details how she did this in a Gizmodo article. It's, it's, it's unbelievably fascinating because his name wasn't anywhere in the account, A. And B, he only tweeted like seven times in less than a year. In any case, he, it turned out he tweeted six or seven times under the name Reinhold Niebuhr. Okay, that's part one. Part two, why Reinhold Niebuhr? Turns out he went to the College of William and Mary. Comey's Catholic. Um, and he wrote his uh, senior thesis. Give him another 15. The attorney uh, general's here. And, but, so, oh, okay, but, okay. but we'd actually like to hear Thank you. 20 okay. more seconds. Well, and he wrote, um, he wrote a senior thesis on Reinhold Niebuhr and um, James Falwell. Why, why is Reinhold Niebuhr interesting to Comey? Mm. Um, first of all, Niebuhr's... I've got to guess. You want to guess? Recovering alcoholic. Uh, no. Okay. Uh, pra- practical Christianity. Oh, well. Niebuhr was frequently... <laughs> frequently. You no, know, I said that. Because he wrote the Serenity Prayer. Yeah, he wrote the Serenity Prayer. Exactly. Okay, that was wrong. Um, that's, I was going to get to why he's probably most famous in America. For, for the, he's the purported author of the Serenity Prayer. Okay. But politicians love him because he talks about uh, faith in the world. He talks about necessary compromises for men and women of faith okay. to act in the political sphere. Last fact before I go. Please. Hilariously, uh, it was discovered that the FBI has a 600-page file on Reinhold Niebuhr. Oh, I didn't know that yeah, part. Com- well, compiled by J. Edgar Hoover, of course, because because oh, Niebuhr, you know, that's believed great. in helping the underprivileged, etc. So uh, Hoover thought he was a communist and started watching. Excellent. Him. Yeah. What thank was you. the book about? How politicians should compromise. Here. It, it, it was mainly a, a theory of his that he ex- in, okay. in lectures and so on. I haven't read the book. I'm thank sorry. you. You know, we don't okay. have a book for an ex book club, so go figure that out. Uh, somebody should come up with one. I'd be happy okay. to do it. You wanted to read the one by Patty Smith about uh, growing up with uh, just. Oh, just uh, kids, just a kid. yeah. Book. A lot of people read it. 
It is a good book. Well, it is a good book. I've read it, thing. but I've read it again. But a lot of people haven't read it. Well, we'll we should read our second one, we possibly. Go. Let's go off Goodbye. there. Okay. Nice to yeah. see you. Let's Alex go Beam Alex joins Beam. us every week. He He's does. the wacky and woolly columnist for the he Boston is. Globe, and his latest book is The Feud, Vladimir Nabokov, Edmund Wilson, and the End of a Beautiful Friendship. Coming up, Attorney General Moore Healy is here to take our questions and yours. She's going to be here for the full hour. Ask the AG next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. Here with us in Studio 3 for our monthly edition of Ask the Attorney General is Attorney General Maura Healy. The Attorney General will be taking our questions and your calls. You can reach her at 877-301-897. You can email her at bprwgbh.org or tweet her at BOS, as in Boston, BOS Public Radio. Attorney General Healy, nice to see you. Great to be with you, Jim Marjorie. Great to be with you, too, Attorney General Healy. You know, um, I want to start with some things that are in the news We've talked a lot about the opioid crisis. Um, the president has declared it a public health emergency, not a national emergency. Is there a big difference that we should worry about, or is public health emergency good enough? Well, I, th- I think what we should worry about is that this is the most significant public health crisis that our country has seen. I was just down the other day in Fall River with a group doing another roundtable with folks on the front lines about what is happening in very real time in our communities. I did one out in North Adams a little while back. You know, even today here in Massachusetts, five more people are going to die from opioids and an untold number will OD and be brought back to life through Narcan. This is uh, the national public health crisis. This president has yet to put out a game plan, has yet to put his money where his mouth is. I was very disappointed to read what I think we're going to see in an hour in terms of an announcement. There isn't going to be meaningful money. There isn't going to be meaningful funding for things like treatment and resources. As I listen day after day to the desperation of families who are looking for beds and treatment programs and step-down programs and housing, um, as I think about you know what we have launched out of my office with GE to get education around opioid use uh, prevention into our schools, you know, we need help from the federal government and we need leadership from the federal government. And once again, I think this demonstrates that this is a president who is in over his head. He lacks the competence uh, to, to, to be able to organize these federal agencies to get things done. And uh, any announcement that isn't going to come without billions of dollars behind it for this public health crisis is going to be woefully inadequate. And I think Americans out, uh, you know, across this country, families are going to be really disappointed. With so little help from the White House, uh, I think uh, people need to be uh, asking a lot of questions and demanding far greater answers. We're going to continue to do what we can do here in Massachusetts. I recently announced that we have expanded what is already going to be the largest public health investigation of its kind uh, by state AGs into the opioid manufacturers and distributors. We need answers. We need to get to the bottom of the extent to which their actions fueled this crisis. And we're also going to continue to work day in and day out to um, make Narcan available to first responders, to work on expanding treatment options. Importantly, you know, from my perspective, we need to double down on what we're doing around prevention and education. But boy, uh, it's a, you know, it's, it, it's, it's painful. You know, if you spend time uh, listening to those in recovery, listening to those who struggle, who continue to struggle, 
the desperation of mothers and fathers, of sons and daughters, sisters and brothers who talk to me, desperate to find help for their loved one, and to think that this president, um, for all of his talk, uh, isn't going to take on and tackle what is the nation's single greatest public health crisis. I mean, he is. How much? How much more time does he need? Well, you know, when you talk been, about, he's been at this for talking about this for a long time, and we have not seen anything come our way. And in fact, one of the, you know, you know, I sued him over health care, but one of the things that is so wrong about his continued effort to sabotage health care, you're talking about health care that has enabled more people across this country to get access to needed services, including services for opioid addiction. When you t- when you go down to Fall River and North Adams and you talk to people. With currently with family member with an opioid problem, they can't. The, the waiting list is too long. There's no place for them to go. What's going on? Well, you know, certainly those folks are doing incredible work on the front lines and working so hard to get people the care. Uh, what I see and what I hear about is just fundamentally we don't have enough of it. We don't have enough beds. We don't have enough options. Even sober homes. Um, you look at uh, sober homes and the, the very few that have been certified across the Commonwealth. You go out to, to areas like North Adams where there really isn't a uh, sustained, uh, robust recovery um, uh, treatment center in place. There's wonderful, wonderful programming and wonderful people out there, but they will tell you as they tell me, they need help. They need help. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really not limited to, to any region. It's, it's pervasive across the state. And, you know, what I do know is that no one state government can solve this issue that really has been a national issue years in the making. It's exactly why we need leadership from the federal government, and we need an administration that can coordinate among HHS and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and, 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 and DEA and other organizations, because that's part of this as well. Well, there's also a lot of pressure, I would seem to me, on the governor of Massachusetts, who is on the president's opioid, whatever it's called, commission. And up until a day or so ago, the uh, Charlie Baker uh, was quoted as saying he was optimistic about this. And uh, I'm not criticizing him for this. I'm just observing. He said... White House top leadership were involved in all the meetings, et cetera. I'm very curious that after the 2 o'clock announcement, since he isn't designating in a, quote, national emergency, which would do the things you want to be done, uh, uh, what uh, Governor Baker's reaction is, because I think he's got some power in this uh, instance. We're talking to the Attorney General. We're going to get to your calls in a minute. Attorney General, one or two more uh, current things. Uh, The Senate has released this health care reform bill. State Senate has released this bill. Part of it that's quite controversial is addressing a reimbursement differential disparity between the big boys and girls in the hospital industry, the MGHs, the Brighams, and some of the smaller community hospitals. This is a product, unless I'm wrong, of the reports that your office, you, your predecessor, put out every year about these disparities, is it not? It's certainly related to some of what our office over the last several years has studied in terms of the, the trends of health care costs in our state. And it's certainly something that we're engaged in, we're paying attention to. Um, and, you know, I think it's important that we continue to bring all stakeholders to the table, our large teaching hospitals, but also our community health centers and our community hospitals. And, and it seems to me, you know, what, what the question should be is how can we here in Massachusetts, where we have led in universal health care, um, how can we think about ways to uh, continue to look to ensure that people fundamentally have access to care? Because if costs get too high 
and you can't afford those premiums, which, by the way, thank you very much, Donald Trump. Uh, premiums have just skyrocketed you, you're, and are going to as a result of, this, yeah. of what he's done. But let's think you're about... You're suing around the subsidies, too, or you're yeah, not? We, yeah, we are. Yeah, we okay. are. But, um, you know, let's think about how we're, we're, we're able to, to work efficiently to, to, to lower costs so that at the end of the day, more people have access to care. Because if you can't afford it because your premium or your copay is too high, then you're not going to be able to access care. Do you support it's, the direction the Senate bill is going, basically trying to level the playing field between the smaller community hospitals? Hospitals and the big ones? It's something that we're reviewing now. Okay. Okay, want to go to the calls? Let's go to the calls. Uh, we've got uh, Dennis on the phone. Is it Dennis from Foxborough? Hi, is. Dennis. You're on with the Attorney General. Welcome. Hi, Tim and Marjorie. Thanks for having me on. Sure. I welcome this opportunity. Um, my issue is the drop-off boxes in police stations for people to access uh, drugs that they want to get rid of so they don't have them around the house. Maybe I run in cynical circles, but I have friends who wouldn't drop them off there because they don't know what happens to them after they get dropped off there. And, and uh, so I think it would be helpful. I don't know if the attorney general knows uh, this, but uh, I'd like to uh, two things. I'd like to know right now what happens to those drugs. And secondly, I'd like to see law enforcement advertise more what the stream is of getting rid of those, not just provide they go in the slot. Thanks. Right. You're talking to her. Let's hear. Hey, Dennis, thank you so much for your call. So, um, important important information for folks to know. In your local police department um, are located these boxes where you can go and take unused prescription drugs um, and medications. And we really strongly encourage people to do that, to go through your medicine cabinet, um, go through your, your, uh, your, your house and make sure that you're getting rid of in, in real time medicine, medication that you're not going to use. You can take them down to the police station. You can put them in this safe disposal box. It's all locked up and secure. And then what happens is periodically um, uh, a company will come and pick up that, um, clear out those boxes from police departments, and then those drugs are taken away and destroyed. Mm -hmm. We need to remind people about this, and I really – I appreciate the call, Dennis, because it gives me an opportunity to to plug this and to encourage people – to get out there and um, and make sure that they are taking unused medication back to these places. I also think it's interesting there are some places that are starting to innovate. Pharmacies, for example. Um, recently, um, CVS announced that it was going to make a similar lockboxes available in its pharmacies. And that'll make it all the more easier, too, for people. As long as these are secure, that's important. We, there's a public safety factor. We want to make sure that they are secure, but let's make it easy for people to dispose of unused medication, particularly prescription opioids, because uh, of the of the crisis that we are in. Are they supposed to be at every police station? They're available in every police okay. station, just about. If they're not, then, then call my office, because uh, we've worked out funding, you know, with departments to make these okay. available. You know, at the top of the show, Attorney General, we talked to... Uh, uh, our listeners about this program I had not even heard about until I read Hiawatha Bray in the Globe today. This Amazon key thing where mm-hmm. essentially for 349 bucks you get a camera installed, a smart lock, etc. And you order a package and you click on the right thing and they open your door with allegedly on camera or with a video and deposit your package inside the door and then close the door. It gives me the creeps, but a lot of people that called us loved it. Are there issues that you're concerned about with this? Sure. You know, look, it's another instance where we see technology evolving to 
um, to enable all sorts of, uh, of new things. And I could see there are a lot of customers out there that would love the ease of, of having uh, something like this. You know, you, you don't have to, to arrange to be home at a certain time or sign a FedEx slip. I mean, you're, you know, there it is. It's in your, it's in your, uh, uh, in your house when you get home. That said, from the work that we do, I have real concerns about uh, public safety. And, you know, you think about the ability of criminals who are always looking to hack, who are always looking to get into our systems. Um, you know, I think there are real questions. So, you know, I certainly would be really leery about engaging in those uh, those services myself, knowing what I know. And I would just encourage people to to really exercise caution here. You know, I mean... Remember a while back there were reports of the the teddy bears for kids that mm-hmm. that uh, had cameras in oh, them. Oh yes, right. And um, and then even nests. Some people have nests, for example, in their homes that enable them remotely to to turn on heating systems and turn off heating systems. I mean, there's all sorts of really cool technology out there that enables really cool things that are uh, make life simpler, make life easier. But there are consequences to that too. And, you know, I'm always of the view, let's work to make sure that the right protections are in place to protect public safety. I mean, look at what we went through with Equifax just recently, right? We're suing them. We've uh, we've filed legislation <laughs> seeking reform of that industry. People got to be careful because, unfortunately, they're... There's always a bad element out there looking to take advantage and exploit. We're talking to the Attorney General Maura Healy. She's going to be with us till 2 o'clock, 877-301-8970 is the number. Let's go to Patrick in Boston. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Patrick. Hi. Hi. Hi, Patrick. Hi. Thank you. Sure. Hi. Attorney General uh, Maura Healy, thank you very much for all you're doing. And uh, I, I'm a veteran. Uh, I had three surgeries at the VA hospital. Uh, and subsequently, the the, the, the the pain pills they were giving me uh, were 30 days supply. And actually, I really didn't need more than one, maybe two at the most. And I didn't know what to do with these things. And uh, they were going to dispose of them and, the, you know, throw them would probably that would not be uh, suitable. And so I brought them back to the VA and I said, here, I don't know what to do with these. I don't need all these. I don't need any more than one or two. I don't know why the doctor prescribed 30 days uh, supply of these uh, of, of this. And so uh, I turned them back in. And they thought it was surprising that I would do that. And uh, But I said, I don't know any other place to, to do it. And this was maybe last year sometime. Mm-hmm. Um, What's your question, but, Patrick, yeah. if I may? The question I have of uh, Attorney General Healy is, uh, could someone uh, wiretap your cell phone without you knowing? Whoa, okay, because I was going at <laughs> <On> the opioids. <laughs> could someone wiretap your phone uh, without your knowing? Well, you know, if you're the subject of a criminal investigation where a judge has determined that there is probable cause to believe that you have committed a crime, uh, that judge, uh, through a court order, may approve a wiretap on your phone. That's how that's how that works. There's due process. It all has to go before a judge. 
But um, hey, um, you know, you're a veteran, Patrick. I want to uh, I want to just say you mentioned the VA hospital. I am really disturbed about what's happening, the reports about what's happening within our VA hospitals. And, you know, for God's sakes, the people who are out there, who've been out there, who have served, who are serving, deserve no less than first class treatment when it comes to, to medical care and attention in this country. And we certainly need to, to get that right. I'm glad the VA took your pills back. Um, uh, again, another example of, of you know, um, the the. the the, the two things. One, I think we have worked hard through legislation to reduce and change some of the prescribing culture so that people are prescribing fuller, uh, fewer pills. But again, it's about educating and make sure people know that when you're done and, and y- you have extra pills, extra medication, please take them to a safe disposal box. Now, Attorney General, no. can I just ask? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to ask about the, the little golfer. Oh, I shouldn't please. Say, I no, shouldn't no, say no. little golfer. No, this that's is not a great true. story. She may be a big golfer as far as I know. In any case, you're a former jock. That's why I'm asking you. Did you read about this uh, golfer, Emily Nash from Lunenburg? I saw that report yeah. uh, this morning. Yeah, she it, is a heck of a golfer. She is a heck of Good a golfer. Not enough girls to have a team at, at uh, Lunenburg High. So she's played with the boys' team. They go to the Division Three Central Mass Tournament, and the overall team finishes fourth. But she shoots 75, three over par, beats all the boys in the individual scores, but can't take home the trophy because of MIAA rules. That's, what is that, the mass something or other? Interscholastic athletic yes, association. Yes, thank you very much. What do you make of this, Attorney General? Well, um, good for Emily Nash. And I want you on my foursome next, uh, yeah. <laughs> the next yeah. scramble I'm in. But I'll tell you, um, look, uh, she, she she won the tournament, you know. She, she hit from the same tees and... Uh, she won the tournament, so I'd say give her the trophy. I don't know how it works out with with MIAA rules. Something I have to look at. But you, you know, see the best part of the story. Yeah, the boy. Did you see the boy who who was declared the winner offered her the trophy, saying you're the legitimate yeah. winner, and she, she didn't take yeah. it. But that hey, he that deserves a trophy too. Good for him. I agree. Yeah. I thought you that know, was I mean, very that's, gracious. That's a, uh, in this day and age, we we need boys and girls to support one another. We need to support. I mean, this goes to larger systemic cultural issues, but. Uh, Good for Emily Nash and and uh, and good for that young man. And uh, um, speaking of larger systemic cultural issues, we've been talking <laughs> about we've been talking about this Me Too thing all week long. Have you, have you tweeted Me Too, Attorney General? Uh, no, I haven't. I have been following um, absolutely. And you know, I think it's I think it's great that people are speaking out and telling their stories and Do you have a story? shining you a light on. on I think I mean if you're a woman, you I don't know who hasn't been the subject of some form of uh, sexual harassment yeah. or uh, crude behavior or you know I mean it, it runs the gamut. But what I do think is is important here, I, you know I've talked to a lot of people about this, and I think that you know for some they weren't really registering just how pervasive this is and, and how much a part of one's life this is from an early age. Forward. It doesn't matter if you're in a corporate setting or in politics or government or, you know, um, it, it, it just is, is all too pervasive. And I, um, I, I think it's it, – I applaud folks with the courage to come forward and tell totally. their stories. And we certainly hope that this leads to, to, to cultural change. You think it will? Because this has been so huge. Well, we have to hope for that. Obviously, this has been something that's been a battle for – uh, not just years, decades, centuries, right? But um, but we have to go forward and, and let these high-profile, whether you're talking about the Bill O'Reilly and the Fox scandal, outrageous. Um, you know, the, Mark Halpern the, 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 today, today resigned from NBC, NBC and MSNBC. Yeah. 
Really? Today, I, I yeah. hadn't seen that. Yeah, wow. Um, and certainly, you know, Hollywood um, and, uh, and and Harvey Weinstein. It's uh, it's let let this be an opportunity. Of course, you know, um, my view always is that it's about what what can we do here locally within our own communities, neighborhoods, schools. It's why, again, I, I really try to promote our Game Change program with the Patriots. This thing with cra- with Yeah, the you know, it was great. We started this, as you know, a couple of years ago, and it basically just sprang out of – he and I have a shared interest in, in uh, tackling issues of dating violence, relationship violence, domestic violence. And basically over the last two years, we are in now well over 100 high schools and now middle schools with a program called Game Change um, where uh, young people are taught about how to recognize the signs of stalking behavior, bullying, dating violence, and then how to have healthy relationships, how as a bystander to intervene. You know, we had this summit back at Gillette a couple weeks ago where we brought together these student leaders, and it was great because over the last year, you know, this isn't like a one-time, one-and-done thing. This is a curriculum that's sustained throughout the year, and they were telling stories about what they were doing, and I remember one girl stood up and she spoke about having recognized that a friend of hers was spending a lot of time with a new boyfriend, um, and it made her concerned. And it made her concerned because she felt he was really controlling who she could see and yeah. who she could spend time with. And because she'd done our program, she actually then had the wherewithal to have a conversation That's with great. this girl, right? So it's like, you know, to me it's like everything is – Let's start with ourselves. Let's start with what are the values? What are we modeling in terms of good behavior? What are we calling out in terms of outrageous behavior? Um, and, uh, you know, obviously there's a, there's a tremendous amount of work to be done. Now, I know you're really busy. We know we follow your career and doing all those things. So I assume you don't have time to watch television shows like, I don't know, the opposition with Jordan Klepper. You ever heard of that show? <laughs> no, I never heard of that. <laughs> okay, show. well, actually, listen to a little. There was some, they interviewed somebody the other day. Here's a little bite of that. Last week, he announced this rule that employers, bosses, could decide whether or not their employees, women, could have access to no-cost birth control under insurance plans. It's insane. And so it's also unconstitutional. So we've sued on that as well because it's discriminatory, obviously, towards women. And it's a, it's a violation of Establishment Clause and, and basic principles of, of, of liberty in the workplace. And so those, that's an area. The environment's an area, and also uh, education is a big area. Pick a lane. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I wish it were that simple. Every day we wake up, and, and I wait to see what, what else he's done that's illegal or unconstitutional. And we've had no shortage of action, that's for sure. That's how you wake up? Yeah. Sadly, it's, it's not a great way to wake up, but that's where we find ourselves. So on that note, uh, he's pretty funny, by the way, I should <laughs> he's say. He's a very it's funny a guy. Colbert, I'll shoot, for those who don't know. We have a question online. I don't know if this was email. I don't know how we got it, but we got it a minute ago. Uh, can Jim and, can uh, the Attorney General be asked about the Education Department's plan to offer partial relief for defrauded for-profit college students? It's from Kirk, and I know that's one of the pieces of litigation yeah. you're involved in. So could you tell us what you're doing and answer Kirk's question, both sure. if you can, please? Uh, thanks, Kirk. So big problem. Betsy DeVos, Secretary of Education, does not support students, in my view. Uh, and I'll tell you why. There was a rule in place that made it harder for predatory for-profit schools to take advantage of students and taxpayers by um, by agreement. This this rule, this this had been worked out. 
And it was all – so here's what she does. She comes in and she says, I don't like that rule. We're just not going to enforce that rule, um, which is going to, in my view, disadvantage students. It's also going to hurt us as taxpayers. And instead, she's lent support to this for-profit school industry that's going to continue to be out there marketing to students, getting them to sign up and take classes for sham institutions, the likes of which are Trump universities in the world. And students are going to be hosed with no relief. And so we're suing on that because she's standing with industry and for-profit school executive. She's brought many of them into the Department of Education, actually, in her administration. And she said she's not going to enforce that rule. She's not going to implement that rule. Now, she's giving a song and dance about delaying uh, implementation while they go through a review and comment process, which is just a bunch of bunk. We spent two and a half years on this. And we had financial institutions and higher ed and all the stakeholders around. This thing was a subject of like 10,000 comments. So it doesn't need any more review. What it reflects, though, is Betsy DeVos's continued inclination to side with those who want to privatize education in our um, uh, system across this country and her decision to once again side with for-profit school industry uh, over and at the expense of students and federal taxpayers. So we've taken her to court, I think, twice already uh, on this issue. I've met with not just hundreds, thousands of students in Massachusetts alone who've been affected by this because our office, of course, went after and shut down some of these predatory actors. Mm -hmm. And when we did that, we also would host these workshops where we'd invite all these students in uh, taking their information, we actually submitted hundreds of affidavits on their behalf to the Obama administration Department of Ed so that they could get discharges of these loans. We had this all done. So I've actually sat in the room with so many of these affected students. A lot of them are veterans or service members who qualified for GI Bill money. Um, they're, they're single mothers who are looking for a way to uh, get a little bit more economic mobility and support their families. It's so sad. And yet here's this administration that's just going to, well, once again, um, side with, with industry at the expense of vulnerable students. But Kirk will keep at it. I encourage you and others out there who have student loan um, issues right now who may be in default or facing default to call my office. I have a student loan assistance What's unit, that? and we are working regularly. That hotline, it's 888 888- Eight three zero six two seven seven because we're working with students to get them into better repayment options and to try to help them out. But quickly, before we take a break, Attorney General, you requested a meeting with uh, Secretary DeVos when she was at Harvard, did you not? Yeah. What did you hear back from them? Uh, crickets. Literally, not even we're too busy? Not even we're too busy. So I guess that didn't happen. But we'll keep asking because this is a really important issue. I mean, student loan debt in this country is one point three, one point four trillion dollars and growing. And you know, whether it's on the Title IX issues, on campus sexual assault issues, her uh, refusal to, uh, to, 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 under- to, to understand, I guess, that there are laws that apply to students with disability, you know, disabilities in, uh, in our schools. It's, it's really disturbing. And so we just have to, to continue to use the courts and, and advocacy to try to uh, counter this. But it's, it's, it's most unfortunate. That's the voice of Attorney General Maura Healy. She's going to be with us until the top of the hour at 2. Taking our questions and your calls, our number is 877-301-8970. Our email address is wgbpr at wgbhnews.org. Did I get that right? I hope so. I think so. Email is wgbh.org. So. 
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie Egan. The Attorney General is kind enough to spend the rest of the hour with us. She spends an hour every month here answering your questions. You, what, what's the email address again? I'm sorry. I really mess that up. I'm what's sorry. <laughs> I, I don't know what the email address is. I'm just going to concede defeat. It's BPR at WGVH.org. And the phone number is 877-301-8970. Before we go back to the Coles Attorney General, criminal justice reform bill uh, authored by Will Brownsberger, a state senator, and obviously in Mm -hmm. the state senate in general. One of the most controversial provisions is the so-called Romeo and Juliet provision. And I'll give the short version. It it eliminates the, the, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, the current provision which says that a no person under 16 can consent to any sex act. So even if it's a 17-year-old junior in high school with his or her 15-year-old junior or sophomore girlfriend or boyfriend, if they have what we would consider to be consensual sex, and we're surely not encouraging it, but if they have what, we, what normal people would consider consensual sex, it's a crime under state law. And what this proposal in the Senate would do is create age ranges that under which they're not condoning this, but they're saying they wouldn't be a crime. But were you on either the the specifics or at least the concept Mm -hmm. of moving away from a hard and inflexible definition of statutory rape when it comes to teenagers? I'm not talking about older uh, perpetrators. Yeah. Well, um, this is something that I have to look at more and learn a little bit more about. I haven't delved into this particular provision uh, too, too extensively. But I think that, you know, what's important is we have a moment now, Jim, in our state you know, and again, I want to encourage people to think about, you know, in the midst of everything that's happening nationally, what can we do within our own state that's going to actually have a meaningful difference on people's lives? And I think criminal justice reform and the work and the look being undertaken right now in the legislature is really important. Now, um, you know, generally speaking, I think that um, this will be a, a process necessarily of deliberation, more input, although I give uh, the legislature credit. I think that that people really have been engaged on this and talking about this over the last year. My office is going to continue to stay engaged. I think that you know we want to whether you're talking about a provision like that or other provisions. You know, it seems to me it's got to be about what makes sense. What's smart here? You know, what are what are the real problems we're trying to address and solve? What are the incentives? and disincentives that are in place. And are they right right now, or do they need reform? I'm somebody who believes it's worth investment and expenditure of energy and money on the front end to keep people out of the criminal justice system as best we can, particularly those who may need treatment for behavioral health, mental health issues, addiction. On the back end, what are we doing so that people are set up for success when it comes to reentry? You know, and what are the barriers we need to address to uh, make sure that that you know, people are able to move on successfully once they've once they've done their time. I think that looking at some of the sentencing, um, and there's been a lot of talk right now, and there are provisions related to, to to sentencing and reforms there. Those are good discussions. And again, my office, you know, um, comes at this from a couple perspectives. One, certainly from a law enforcement public safety perspective, you know, and and I'm very sensitive, particularly as chair of the Massachusetts Office of Victim Assistance Board, the MOVA Board that you know, we need to make sure that we're taking into account the views of victims and survivors. But also, you know, I come at it from a perspective of civil rights and what is happening within our system, what has happened, and what are some ways to address what really are disparities reflected in the system. 
Tim in we a car. Have, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to read an email. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Uh, Tim, I'm, we'll get to you in Tim, one we'll second. Tim, we'll get to you in just one second because I've been, been delinquent on the email since I didn't know the email address, which, by the way, is bpr at wgbh.org. Sharon Newbury wants to know, you uh, issued many, begun many lawsuits against the Trump administration. She mentions the one against Equifax, health care reform, and the subsidies, women having access to birth control. She wants to know how long it will – what's the timeline here? These could go on for quite some time before they get anywhere. Well, you know, two have already been decided. We've beat Scott really? through it twice in court. We beat him on his effort to head roll of the EPA. ahead of the EPA, uh, former attorney general of Oklahoma. And, uh, and, you know, basically we beat him on his attempt to roll back standards limits that were put in place around methane emissions. You know, I, I I lament that every that we have to think about this. You know, I really I wish we weren't in a place where we had to continue to sue the federal government because they're doing things and President Trump is doing things that undermine Massachusetts interests. I sued on health care. Why? Because he is actively looking to sabotage our health care market and people's access to care. And that affects real lives and our healthcare market here in Massachusetts. I sued on the EPA and Scott Pruitt because we've got a clean energy economy here to protect and investments to protect. We have more clean energy jobs in Massachusetts than total coal jobs in the entire country. Mm-hmm. And so when he the other day, through Rick Perry, comes out with this proposal that they want all of us to subsidize and pay for coal and nuclear powered plants and not, you know, put the investments in renewables like solar, wind, and hydro. That hurts our investments in the direction that we've already um, uh, determined we're going here, by law, by the way, here in Massachusetts. You know, I I think about civil rights, um, and we've taken a lot of actions. I mentioned the the immigration cases that we've been involved with, including DACA. We've got 20,000 DACA-protected, DACA-eligible young people here in Massachusetts who are doing everything right, working, paying taxes, serving in the military, Right. For all intents and purposes, they are Americans. These dreamers are Americans, and he wants to take that away. So we sue on that. You know, I'm always guided by, you know, whenever I see an executive order or some action by the federal agency, the question is, what does this mean for Massachusetts? And unfortunately, to date, it's meant a whole lot of hurt and harm for our businesses, our our residents, and, uh, and that's why we're filing these cases, Sharon. So... You know, I wish I wish that would end, but until and unless he stops doing things that are unconstitutional and illegal, we're just going to have to see him in court. Maybe you should just wake up later, and so we're not. Let's go to let's go to Tim in a car. You're next on Boston Public Radio. I'll tell Radio. you, every Friday though we hold our breath because it seems like every Friday he comes out with something, and yeah. you know, then we're like working as lawyers over the weekend and trying to sort through it. Tim in a car, you're on with the Attorney General Maura Healy. Welcome and thanks for your patience. Hi. Well, thank you very much. Um, Yesterday, when I saw the news on the verdict out of the New England uh, compounding center, that terrible place that made so many people sick with meningitis and killed 76 people. You talk about mass murder. And my goodness, what did they uh, get him with? Mail fraud. I mean, yeah, maybe we got Al Capone with that. But who is to answer for this? I'd love to hear your reaction. He was acquitted of murder yesterday for those who aren't up to yeah. speed on the story that uh, Tim is talking about. I'm sorry, yeah. Attorney General. Um, so, Tim, this is a federal case prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney's Office, who also prosecuted Barry Caden, who was the owner of New England Compounding. Um, I think he's in jail now. He's gone to prison nine for nine years. years. Yeah. yeah. So, um, 
you know, I, I think this person was convicted of conspiracy and racketeering, mail fraud. You're right. There may have been some other charges. Um, I'm sure, you know, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office and the prosecutors did the very best they could. They put on the case. Ultimately, it's up to the jury to decide, and, and the jury decided here. My office on this one, Tam, has worked hard We to actually, through our victim compensation division, to get uh, victim compensation awards out to victims across the country. We've been the administrator for those funds, and that's been a lot of work. Um, so egregious, so outrageous. One of the th- reasons I went before the legislature earlier this year in support of changes to the corporate manslaughter bill is because we need to make sure the right incentives are in place. You know, right now, um, the most you can can get a criminal fine for corporate manslaughter. If your company goes out there and does something that results in death, it's $1,000. So, you know, we've proposed new legislation to address that. But, you know, um, uh, just because you sit behind a a desk or wear a lab coat doesn't make you any more uh, or less responsible when your actions – your uh, recklessness, your negligence, uh, the criminality of your conduct results in, in serious harm to people. And, and, you know, individuals and entities should be appropriately held accountable. Are there state, uh, thank you for your call, Tim. Uh, uh, you mentioned these were federal prosecutions. Were there grounds to prosecute them under state law and you deferred or were there not? I don't know. Um, enough about I'm, the not, case. I, I'm not sure. You know, I think this was before my, my time okay. to take an office. Uh, Pitbulls, another horrible mm-hmm case this week uh uh, obviously Mm. death and just they're unthinkably horrible you know the argument we've all heard it a thousand times never harmed anybody they're great everybody feels horrible on the flip side is these dogs are are, it's contended are bred to uh to hurt uh that's why they have pit bulls there was a breed specific ban proposal deval patrick didn't like it years ago it's probably going to rear something is going to rear its head again as it does every time as a tragedy like this where are you on this whole issue of uh, pit bulls Mm. um (laughs) no one's ever put that question to me directly i grew up with a lot of dogs never had a pit bull um and on some level, you know, I, I, I got to say, and I don't know all the specifics of this latest horrific incident, but, you know, the question is, what are you thinking? You know, what, what if you know the nature and proclivity of, of these animals, and again, I'm not, you know, anti-pitbull, but, you know, people got to, people got to be responsible too. And uh, it's just, it's just a... Uh, is a ban just, a reasonable it's just, it's just, response? It's just devastating. It's, it's just a horrible, horrible thing. I don't know. It, you know, I, it's something to, to look at, I guess, and, and for policymakers to, to sort through. It's, but, you know, in the meantime, um, boy, just just take care. Let's go to Bruce. You're in Harvard, Massachusetts, with the Attorney General of Massachusetts, Mara Healy. Bruce, thank you for calling. Hi. Hello. Um, thank you for the call. Um, I purchased in this um, June a car from a local dealership. And um, he did not divulge at the time that I had that he had a a lien and repossession on the car that I purchased, hmm. and he refused to give me back my money. What are my obligations to get my money back, please? Yeah. Um, well, why don't we do this, Bruce? Let's get you on the. If you stay on the line, I'll get you on the phone with my office. And I'm so glad you. Well, I'm sorry about this happening to you, but. You know, it does point up something that we uh, we deal with day in and day out. We t- we these are the kinds of calls that we take, and let us get a little bit more information from you and see if 
um, there is anything there that we can do to address this. I don't know the specifics of it, but one thing is clear. We've gone after any number of times car dealerships that didn't make the appropriate disclosures that they were supposed to make. It sounds um, it sounds it sounds very shady what transpired in your situation, um, but let me get you on the phone with with folks. Bruce, um, stay on hold. I, can I just give everybody sorry, to just so folks have it our our, our hotline our consumer hotline six one seven seven two seven eighty four hundred. I want people to know that just in since the beginning of October alone. Teams in my office have recovered $900,000 for consumers, folks like Bruce. You know, some examples, there was a a consumer whose husband passed away just before they could travel to Ireland, and we worked to get her a $5,000 refund of that trip. Um, We had another consumer uh, who came to us with an issue. A shipping company delivered the goods. They were defective. She was out $1,000. We got the company to pay the $1,000. Another senior who was scammed into purchasing $4,000 worth of gift cards with her credit card, we got that $4,000 back for that senior. So I just want people to know that, you know, that's the work of the people's law firm, as we, as we call it, 617-727-8400. You know, if you feel like you've been the victim of a fraud or a scam, uh, somebody like Bruce, you know, call our office and let us help. We're talking, speaking of the people's law firm, tell us about this and the summit that the summit you had for community leaders and providers and educators and so and forth. Bruce, stay on hold and give your number to one of our producers. I'm sorry I, I wasn't clear there. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I thought this was cool. We hadn't done this before. Um, you know, part of this is to make sure that people know about the resources in our office, that I have a health care hotline that's regularly working with people to help navigate insurance coverage issues. I have another division um, there in civil rights that regularly takes complaints of, of discrimination and harassment. Um, you know, there are just so many different ways we can get out there and help. And, you know, part of what I feel is important in my job is to make sure people know about that. So, when I started, one of the things I did was set up a community engagement division where we can be out in the community talking to people, training on, on their rights when it comes to wage and hour issues or fair housing or civil rights, you name it. And um, one of the things we did recently is we hosted a summit, and we actually invited community leaders in leaders of various service provider organizations and to say, here are the resources that we have. And we had uh, nearly 150 uh, of these leaders come to this summit that we hosted and we presented on sort of this is what our office does. And in that way, you know, we're going to be able to deliver more services. They'll get the word out that, oh, I have an issue. If I have a problem with X, I'll be able to call the AG's office. One of the things we talked about at that summit was – the fact that we've created two new clinics this year out of my office where we've partnered with, and you'll like this, Jim, because it's legal services. But, you know, basically, I only have so many lawyers and resources in our office. So the question is, with the needs out there, how do you find, you know, ways to, to help people? And we partnered with um, the Legal Services Corporation and the Volunteer Lawyers Project to train lawyers, you know, through our office who could staff a wage theft clinic in courts, and a debt collection clinic in court. Oh, wow. And basically, you know, if you've been, you know, if you're somebody, and wage theft's a big problem. A lot of people out there, vulnerable underground economy who, you know, are, are working hard, 
but not getting paid sometimes even the minimum wage that they're due, or on a construction job, not getting paid the prevailing wage that they're due. And we get these complaints, but, you know, I just realized, like, we get them in such a volume that we need to actually have, have assistance. So our wage theft clinic, we're training lawyers to help workers who've been ripped off. And just since we've started this year, we've helped 250 workers get more than $100,000 back in lost wages. That's wow. money back in their pocket. We also did one for debt collection where we're reaching out to people who are on these debt collection lists in court, you know, and some big debt collection law firm is going to come in and seek the court to sort of rubber stamp a default judgment on these people. A lot of times we know these debts aren't even valid. The, the debt was actually paid and they've got the wrong paperwork. Um, and, you know, there are really some predatory debt collectors out there. We set up this clinic and, again, trained lawyers to represent consumers and uh, we sent letters out to from my office to consumers who were the subject of debt collection saying, come to this clinic and we'll get you matched up with a lawyer. And you know what? In the last six months, we've saved uh, more than 900 consumers over $225,000 in unlawful uh, debt collection. So, you know, 98% of the people who've come through our clinic have gotten a better result than they would have. And that's, you know, what I love about being able to work in a place like the Attorney General's office where you can partner with the bar, you know, partner with legal services and try to think about innovative ways, work with the courts to set up programs to to help people. That's the voice of Attorney General Maura Healy. She's with us for another handful of minutes. You know, Dave emailed and says he's recently noticed this huge increase in the number of law firms out of state heavily advertising on local Boston TV stations. Says they're like ambulance chasers, and he wonders what's going on. Uh, He's thinks that there is a proliferation of these ads perhaps because of a state law change, something going on with this, or have they always been out there? Um, boy, Dave, I don't know the specific answer to that question or, or the, the concern about the particular law. I do, you know, uh, I certainly see advertising from out-of-state law firms. There's been a lot of consolidation of law firms nationally. That said, I would always caution people to do their homework uh, before they engage the services of a lawyer, make sure they understand uh, what it is they're they're getting and what that that lawyer is expected to deliver, and as always, um, do think about our office. You know, uh, we we can't handle every every matter that comes our way, but you know, if you've been the victim of consumer fraud or abuse, um, if you've been the victim of a civil rights violation, um, you know, any number of issues, call call my office, and and uh, people would be surprised. They may have thought they needed a lawyer, but uh, we're able to work with you directly. Uh, that's Maura Healy. And uh, John in Boston, you are on with Maura Healy, the Attorney General of Massachusetts. Hi there. Hello. Hi. Thanks Hi, for John. taking the call. Hello. Regarding the opioid crisis, I'm curious to hear the Attorney General's position regarding opening safe injection facilities in Massachusetts. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Thank you. John. Um, you know, I haven't I haven't decided where I am on that, John, to be honest with you. I certainly support efforts around harm reduction, and I you know, as I said earlier in the show, this is our country's uh, greatest public health crisis, maybe the greatest one we've seen. And so, you know, I think we need to be open to things like safe injection sites. I just want to make sure that, you know, when we take steps, John, that we're we're doing it in a way that really does advance public health, um, doesn't undermine public safety. And, it, and it's something that I'd like to learn more about. Uh, thank you very much for uh, calling. You about to read an email or should we no, go back to the phones? No, we go back to the phones. Let's go okay. to, let's go to uh, do we just have John? Let's go we to did. Stephen in Saugus. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. 
Uh, hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, first off, I'd like to I'd like to thank Attorney General Healy, General Healy for being a true bulwark against this attack on working people. It's I admire it a great deal and keep up the good work. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, I you're welcome. I have a comment and a concern. My comment is that uh, the opioid crisis uh, is attacking sort of. Uh, rural white people as much as anybody. And that became a crisis. But for generations, this um, uh, problem in inner cities has been called a crime wave and people have been put in jail. And I think that that's something that really hasn't been talked about very much. Now, my concern is that uh, so many times white-collar crime seems to be uh, overlooked or bought out of uh, you know, I, and I'm, I wonder how can we get these people to actually go to jail instead of pay some fine that their companies pay? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I hear where you're coming from on both counts, Stephen. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, I think your comment is a fair one about the, the the scope and the span of this opioid crisis and the fact that that uh, communities, rural, urban, suburban, have been affected. Um, I can just deal with what we've got right now. And, and the one, you know, I don't even want to call it a silver lining, Stephen, but one thing I do hope from this crisis is that as a country, we will do a much better job of addressing, first off, the things that sometimes lead to addiction, you know, what is happening with mental health and behavioral health, um, and, and how do we deal with those who are 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 dealing in, in the throes of a disease and the disease of, of addiction. And, you know, that's, that's work. We, we desperately need to do. Um, on, the other, on the other front, um, you know, I've got a white-collar unit in my office. I, we, we regularly are pursuing criminally cases of financial fraud, um, and we're going to continue to do that. I think that uh, it's important that, that, that people be held accountable, that the, that the deterrence message be sent. Uh, in, no, uh, in no way, shape, or form should... Um, it be a cost of doing business and something that you're able to get out of with just the payment of a fine. Um, you look at some of the, the of what happened during the financial crisis and the big banks, and I sure, you know, I agree with the sentiment. I sure would have liked to have seen some people go to jail. Well, you know, also, and thanks for your call. Just we only have a minute left, but I know you received $2 million out of the $120 million, not you, the Attorney yeah. General's office, out of the GM settlement. Yeah. We interviewed a couple uh, years mm-hmm. ago a mother and a brother of a young woman who was killed because GM was not willing to pay whatever it was, the 50 cents for the better ignition switch. There's a situation where, while it's great that we're getting money and there are $120 million for the 50 states, they basically paid a fine for, I know you, you wouldn't mm-hmm. use this word because you have a responsibility I don't have, for killing, hundred was it, 124 people. And I read a lot about it. And this is after Sally Yates, who's now celebrated when she was the assistant attorney general, said we're going to get tough on individuals, not just on businesses. Mm -hmm. But the law, for the most part, as you described, both federal and state insulates these executives and creates it pretty easy if you lawyer up to insulate yourself from criminal prosecution when you're the big boys and girls. Is that not a fair statement? And well, we have 30 seconds. I'm oh, sorry. boy. Okay. So long. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. You know, look, these things, are, these things are complicated, and certainly what it takes to establish something civilly versus criminally beyond a reasonable doubt, and then tie it to the actual sure. top person, what he or she knew Like the compounding when, case. Um, that becomes complicated as a matter of, of prosecution. But let me be clear. we got to do everything we can. That was a $120 million settlement with GM for their failure to disclose the defect they had with their ignition switches. 
And, you know, we're going to continue to do that kind of work. And as an office, I'll look for opportunities, civil and criminal, to hold people accountable when people get hurt. It's my job. Good. That's nice Attorney General Maura Healy, who joins us every month for Ask great, the AG, great to be with you both. where she takes our questions and yours. Thank you very much, Attorney General Healy, for being with us. All and the thank emails you all. will be forwarded, by the way. Yeah, because we, we didn't get to, to a lot of them. I apologize. Thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow, we're going to be at the Boston Public Library, a special Halloween tour edition news quiz. Shirley Young from the Boston Globe, Emily Rooney, Andy Anatko, our tech guy, are all going to be there at 10 o'clock. We're taping an interview with France's ambassador to the United States. He's been ambassador since 2014, so we'll find out how relations have changed with Obama and Hollande, the former president, out, Trump and Macron in. So come early if you want to. Next Tuesday, our Cinema Classic Challenge, the Halloween edition, Psycho. Our crew, Chelsea Murray, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Tereski, Molly Boygon, Christina Bieni, John the Claw Parker. We don't have time to tell us. We're going to have a debate about banning pit bulls. Goodbye. I'm Jim (laughs) Browder. See you tomorrow. I'm Marjorie Egan. Thank you for tuning in. And yes, I hope you see you tomorrow. Bye.